Hello everyone, I'm Thomas from Daft Punk. Random access memories, Daft Punk. Daft Punk and Thomas Angui from Daft Punk. There you go, Daft Punk. We assume that's Daft Punk under those helmets. Hello everyone, I'm Emmanuel from Daft Punk. Daft Punk mixes of Daft Punk. Let's get back to the to Daft Punk. It was because of, you know, Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Hello, robots, big and small from around the world. It's time to get lucky. For real. Forel. It's time to get lucky because today, 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 on Alive 2021, a Daft us. Punk podcast, oh we are talking random access memory. Rambo. Talking Rambo. Rambo access memories. Ram, it's the it's the Ram, it Ram history episode. Is the Ram history episode. We decided to break this one up into friggin' three parts. Three. So today we're going to go all the way through the history of this record, how it came to be, why it came to be what it was, uh, how the boys put it together. Next week we're going to be going through the collaborators, everyone, uh, all the big names that the boys worked with uh, and the video series they put out with them. Uh, and then week three, the album review episode. Track by track. Fan favorites, I think. Yeah. Fan People page. like it. Yeah, people seem to like us. People seem to like us. <laughs> people, they. I think people like Daft Punk. People like Daft Punk. People like Daft Punk. They're they're neutral. <laughs> we are three best friends from Detroit, Michigan, who cannot stop talking about the two Frenchest robots in the world. We've tried. Thomas and Guimond. We've tried. Some some people have pleaded with us to stop. They've begged us to They've stop. They've begged us to stop. My wife has pleaded with me to please stop talking about those robots. Please. There's only one thing that's going to stop us, and that's not going to be for a few years. <laughs> the big sleep. Okay. <laughs> okay. Big sleep. <laughs> them. I honestly want to go before either of them. <laughs> I can't live in a world without Tomas or Gimon. Oh my god. That's people who talk about like I don't want to outlive my kids. <laughs> I don't want to outlive my robots. <laughs> oh my god. Uh we're starting That's to the plot of Bicentennial Man. That's true. We're starting to have a um a like a positive impact in the people around us. They're starting to embrace the robots more and more. They're um uh, I met uh, Andy's definition of a positive impact on people around well, us. They like that. They left more. That, the the world's a better place and more people I like that. I agree with punk. you. I agree with you. There's a um a friend in uh, my book club whose husband started to um come to the um our meetups and uh, he's like into fish and stuff like that and uh we were chatting about the show and uh, what I like and then the next month he came by and he was like. I was tooting around on the Daft Punk stuff and I heard this crazy song that was like with this old guy talking about, I don't know what. And then all of a sudden it just, I had to listen to it twice in a row. It blasted off into this crazy journey. And I was like, let me tell you the story about that song. It's called Giorgio yeah. by Maroder. You got a guy who's a fan of a, of, of, of a musical group with a cultish following to become a fan of a musical group Honestly, with a cultish following. Yeah. I have not given uh, some of, those kinds of groups a chance, but there is a reason they have intense following. Yeah. No, when, you know, true. if you spend enough time with it, you know, yeah. I haven't yet, but I know that if I do, I will get it really. Into I, it. Yeah. I'm not a big uh, jam band fan. I've been to jam band shows though. And uh, some of those bands put on a great time. Yeah. Yeah, I saw fun. one of the Almond Brothers ones. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, it's we talk about I like, saw one of the like we, 
<laughs> but macadamia boys, <laughs> macadamia boys. I, I think there's something to be said. Like we we talk about it all the time about like go and have fun doing stuff. Yeah. you know, and I think you can do that at a fish a fish show or whatever. Yeah, you know? we got some emails from some fans this yeah. week. Super super wacky Chanel. Yeah, um, said big fan of the podcast. Oh, Recently. You. Recently got into Daft Punk after Epilogue. Okay. Wow. So I, I, I it bet, could be a huge entry I point because it, it dominated the news cycle. Yeah. There for like a whole week, the music world was talking about these two French robots. And I bet there was a lot of people that were like, what's, what is this? What's going on? Um, uh, he says, uh, they say, uh, uh, as a kid, I would hear get lucky or one more time or harder, better, faster, stronger. Never linked together that was the same band. And yeah, why would you? So. Understandably, because each each album cycle it's so wildly different that yeah, if you heard if you heard Revolution 909 and then a decade later you heard you just randomly on the radio heard one more time, there's no way that you would ever assume I mean, I, that that was the same band. I'm in the same boat that I was more, much, you know, like I was much more familiar with that punk than I let myself oh, believe. Yeah. Because I think most I people was are familiar with mo- more songs than I, than I realized before I ever like was into Daft Punk yeah. proper or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. Daft Punk. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, uh, Pat, Says, hey, boys, big fan of the cast. And, of course, Daft Punk. Good. Good. Wouldn't that be funny if somebody was like, I love the podcast. I hate this yeah. fucking I'm band. here for you guys, not the robots. <laughs> I'm not a huge U2 guy. They're good. That is true. I like them. But I listened to all of you I, talking U2 to me. I listened to every single you talking U2 to me. I was even less of a fan of R.E.M. And I listened to all of that that uh, that podcast, I was too. thrilled when I announced that. I love R.E.M. I can. I So, my uncle loved rem growing up so i like as like an eight-year-old i was like that's old people music because my uncle loved them (laughs) so i just like my brain never allowed me to like rem um pat uh says do you guys have any plans for a daft punk themed party or gathering we don't have anything specifically but the three of us have absolutely talked about having some sort of uh a daft punk inspired shindig uh sometime in the near future and yep. yeah that that is something that might absolutely happen at ant hall and hamtramck sometime in the near future mm-hmm. absolutely so uh pat pat's from uh pat is the second uh michigan local to ever email the podcast oh, awesome. so that's exciting so yeah you will definitely yeah yeah you'll definitely have to be there that'll absolutely. be a blast absolutely um, but yeah, this is going to be a long episode, so you guys want to just get right. Oh, we should, we should, we have a couple things that we're, you, we have t-shirts. We do have t-shirts. Alive2021.com. Yep. You can order a two French robots t-shirt right now. That's true. You know what else we have? What? Names. <laughs> oh yeah. My name's Andy. I'm Darren. I'm Devin Chetsky. Like the watercraft. Like the watercraft. Good. And, um, uh, like, uh, like you heard from our, our friends here. We love interacting with Daft Punk fans around the world. We've gotten amazing messages from across the globe. If you have a Daft Punk story, uh, if you have an, an anecdote, if you have um, thoughts on them, if you just want to share your love, we had one guy email the show a track-by-track breakdown of Random Access Memories and in in how he interpreted, uh, interpreted it as a, um, a concept album uh, about um, – AI trying to gain sentience. Uh, if you have something like that, 
let's hear it. You can email me at info at alive2021.com and I would love to hear anything you want to say about Daft Punk. If you've drawn pictures of them, if you've made Daft Punk inspired music, anything at all, reach out. Yeah. Now it's time to get going. I think it's time to get into it. Tomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo started their musical journey together. Huddled around samplers and drum machines in Tomas's childhood bedroom, listening to obscure disco records and trying to find the perfect snippets, uh, snippets of vintage magic that could be warped and manipulated into new, exciting sound. They formed Daft Punk, and over the course of their three, first three studio albums, they perfected the art of sampling, using other artists' work as a jumping-off point to create a new thing. With their attention to detail, inventive new ideas, technological prowess, and use of the robotic vocorder, Daft Punk ushered in a new era of pop music, and their influence can still be heard in music today. After the legendary world tour, the robots began contemplating their next step working on music together for the first time since Human After All. And even in those early sessions around 2008, the scale and grandeur of their next project, whatever that would become, was already on another level. Tomas and Guimond set some things aside from those early sessions and turned their focus to scoring Tron Legacy, which offered them a chance on Disney's dime to work with an entire orchestra. And after 18 months in the studio, they had developed a profound appreciation for the ability to articulate their ideas and funnel them through other talented musicians. The idea for their next project began to round into focus. Daft Punk started as two nerdy teenagers screwing with equipment in a bedroom, reliving their childhood by capturing disco and funk records uh, that they grew up with and repackaging them in a new, exciting sound uh, of house and techno. Now, as a Daft Punk fan, I have always been deeply curious about this specific moment in their careers. They had been champions of the idea that anyone in the world could make music from their bedroom. So why now, 20 years in, at a moment when it was easier than ever to make computer music at home, did they feel the need to go the other way? To make huge, uh, to make a huge opulent record that no one could ever make at home. Uh, the album eventually became Random Access Memories. It won, it won five Grammys, including Album of the Year, and vaulted them into the iconic status of pop music royalty. Was this maximalist, expensive, and intricate album uh, uh, a rebuke of the rest of their career? Had they somehow turned their backs on the musical philosophies that had been the bedrock of their legendary careers? I, I, you're looking at me. Yeah. I don't. I don't think they did, but... I mean, I think you're going to tell us. I think it's uh, everybody. Everybody has had an uncle who turns 40 and gets really into like his <laughs> hi-fi speakers. Like, oh, no, I got I can only listen to this on my bows yeah. or whatever. I mean, that's I'm, what that is. Three days ago, we sat at in your vibe den, Andy, and, and we talked about I love how that we we're, want... That's just a normal thing now. Like, people in my people life don't. just like, yeah. like we say the, the vibe den. den. Like, that's a normal thing we for somebody to vibe have. Den. For those of you who don't know, Andy has a vibe den yeah, in his house, which is a place where we go to listen to a lot of the music we talk about here. Yeah. But um, yeah, not three days ago, we sat up there and had a conversation about how we are excited that more albums are coming out. Uh, you know, we, we, we listened to Escapades. Uh, oh, man, Ga did we Rage, And we, I, you know, I was talking about how Moby Reprise is something I, I've been given a, a deep listen to this week. So there yeah. are these, you know, we call it the, the grown-up versions of these these electronic yeah. um, producers or, or artists that, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean it is... 
it's good to see. And yeah. would this all be happening today without Ram? You know, uh, I don't specifically the Gaspard album that came out yes. this There's week. The direct line, you know, if you have, if you are a fan of dancey music, uh, and a, span, a fan of Daft Punk, a fan of Random Access Memories, go listen right now to the Gaspard Auger record, uh, Escapades. Escapades. It's it is we, it, we, it's, you it's wanna, Ram um, production value with like disc disc uh, discovery excitement and fun if, it is really great if you want a specific track to listen to because this isn't going to be one that that I, I talk about but but um uh check out belladone uh belladone yeah uh, is is a is a track if you're a daft punk oops i'm i pressed the button now <laughs> my bad uh but listen yeah, to that but yeah listen to that track if you if you if you're a daft punk you are a daft so, punk fan to to answer my own question <laughs> yes no, dear no. listener. Okay, good. They did not turn their backs on themselves. Random Access Memories is, in fact, the most Daft Punk shit Daft Punk ever recorded. I, yeah, amen. Uh, as we heard from Pete Tong, Tong last week, Tomas told him that this is something they would have recorded much sooner if they knew how to do it. Yeah. This is a, a quote from Tomas uh, that I stumbled across, and it gave me a new uh, appreciation for... Uh, the stuff that they did before this and why they decided to go the other way. It's a little bit long, but this is Tomas. Why and what is the magic of samples? Why for the last 20 years have producers and musicians been extracting these little snippets of audio from vinyl records? What kind of magic did they contain? Because harmonically, the samples are just an F minor or a G flat. Something's not so special. It occurred to us it's probably a collection of so many different parameters of amazing performances, the studio, the places it was recorded, the performers, the craft, the hardware, recording engineers, mixing engineers, the whole production process, these records that took a life, a lot of effort and time to make back then. It was not an easy task, but took a certain craftsmanship somehow cultivated at the same time. We started to say, okay, let's see from a production standpoint, also in terms of performance, whether we could create records that embedded that level of production and craftsmanship and see whether the culture would allow for records like this to be produced. So uh, it's true that we decided to try to recreate these circumstances and really select a team of firsthand actors in witness of that golden age, that era, uh, and in the same time, go back to the places where that magic happened we think we feel uh, that those walls can speak and uh, at the same time there's really this idea that those are magical places when we started to record at Henson Studios which used to be A&M Studios you can still see the concrete there on the floors and the walls just because that when they were constructing it in the early 70s engineers loved the sound so much they decided not to finish that's the kind of magic there are those special places and that's what we're speaking about all the places we recorded have been tested and tried on many classic recordings and it seemed to be a good foundation for a project of that scope and vision yeah yeah there you have it there you have it uh um that's an that's a really interesting way for these guys that built a foundation of sample driven music to start thinking about that's that's just like that's an interesting point. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Why are we building our music off of this stuff? Right. And what's the magic there? You know, it, we. I mean, we do this all the time. You know, like it's it's. You know, we talked about it again this Saturday watching Xanadu, and and there's this one part where Devin 
ears perk up. He sits up and he's like, that's the sample right there. That sums up the feeling of this movie that we're watching. And, you know, keep your eyes out because that track will, will exist uh, yeah, for maybe. you soon. But I'm just saying that's the magic yeah. of that. That's it's not because, yeah, the the, the 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 specific melody and the words are cool or whatever. But also it's a nod to this piece of art that we loved that we you know us three as a group bonded over and and and, and cherish and own on vhs yeah, now yeah. so you know and, and i think that that mentality <laughs> you know um while we've stumbled on it you know in the context of this podcast and our friendship and whatnot uh you know that that's the looking back at everything we've talked about so far in daft punk's career that's that's what they were doing you Absolutely. know they talk about it exactly it- and so yeah, it's just occurring to me that this works now. But this weekend, I watched um, Sound City, a documentary about a recording studio and a mixing council in Van Nuys that Dave Grohl ended up buying. That was just classic and iconic, and it's kind of just a love letter to this type of gear that isn't made anymore. And it has an, a bunch of incredible people in it. And I just put it on because I was, you know, hanging out at home. It's. I think a lot of what I saw in that documentary is absolutely going to apply to this yeah. thing we're talking about now because it's the same kind of yeah. LA studio. Absolutely, and there's there's a lot of people um, that built a life being just a guy around the yeah. studio. They got hired to do stuff. I was. Yeah. I was. We'll get into some of the people they session people they worked with. I was flabbergasted by the numbers they're talking about. They're like. This is this guy is he's recorded more bass guitar than anybody in human history. He's worked on three thousand albums. Yeah. Like what? What is like? That's just his life, and that kind of thing is falling yeah. away right now because because of a, a lack of studio stuff. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's the other side of it too, where like you know, it's it's easy you know when producing music for me to think i'm just gonna go with my crazy computer i have in ableton in my virtual world where i can do anything and yes that's cool and yes that 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 you know that gives you more theoretical possibilities or whatever but it takes an artistry away from learning a particular piece of equipment you know that's part of the artistry that we're talking about in the history you know nowadays Yes, anybody can get into Ableton and do whatever the hell they want to do or whatever. But learning a piece of, yeah, you know, classic, whether it's you know, you know there, that's that's an art in Absolutely. itself. That that also um, is important to yeah. remember that. So uh, the back of Daft Punk uh, as an artistic endeavor has always been Tomas and Guimon tapping into the nostalgia of their childhoods to try to understand why they fell in love with music and movies in the first place. Now they had grown as musicians. Instead of clipping songs and building around them, Daft Punk wanted to build that nostalgia from the ground up. Here is, again, Pete Tong. Artists like Daft Punk get built up bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, actually. But when you cut through all of it, it's actually quite simple, their story, that they've actually been quite consistent since day one about what they like and what they sound like. They just got better at doing it. And I think that they got the opportunity with you know with random access memory to make a record that sounded like that and then the the fact that they were so painstaking about the recording process and honoring you know these great techniques that were dying they were becoming obsolete um extinct in terms of the way people made music that is really fascinating to me and i think that that's a great distillation of of the art that these guys have done over 30 years They've always tapped into the same ideas. They've they've tapped into the same song structures, and and um, 
uh, points of inspiration, then they just continue to get better at get making it. <clears throat> uh, so after wrapping production on the Tron Legacy score, Daft Punk realized they weren't happy with those early recording sessions uh, that they had done around 2008 for what would eventually become Random Access Memories. Tomas told Wax Poetics Magazine that at that point they had still been sampling, but they just weren't happy with how it was coming together. He said those tools were very good at many things, uh, but gener uh, but they were not good at generating emotion as musical instruments. So they went into the proper studio as Daft Punk for the first time. This is Tomas again. So just the two of us would go in with a lot of keyboards, guitars, drums, and stuff and started to do, do demos for six, seven months. Then we started to put uh, put back some of the traditional way of how we would produce music in the past. We were happy with the musical ideas, but we were not really satisfied with the production aspect, primarily the limitation of our own playing capabilities. We could play some riffs and stuff, but we could not keep it up for four minutes straight. So we would cut and paste and loop and stuff. So that like... Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you can you can record yourself playing the same two bars of a bass line and eventually you'll get two good bars. But yeah. it takes like training your uh, rhythm training yeah. is so hard when I listen to myself, when I listen to just a solo guitar track, it's very hard to hit the grid. When you hear a really proficient musician on an instrument, you're like, "Oh, that's that's incredible. That's its own thing. Yeah. I consider myself an okay guitarist, but when I hear someone who can really play guitar, I'm like, right. they, they have a mastery of that. Yeah. And, and yeah, like these, these guys are at the end of the day, they produce music and it, it, like for them to just come out and like openly admit that, that they're like limited playing capabilities for the grand scale of things that they were trying to do for this. It's that, gotta yeah. be so hard to to record some demos and have some fun, and then go have an orchestra play your music <laughs> oh in a God. cathedral, and yeah. then go back to like, all right, let's go back to Ableton for a while. Like yeah. it's it's gotta be impossible. I think that that is specifically what's right. So they had they had done some work on Ram before Tron, and they come back and the the scale of the project was 100 times different right yeah. so like it's exactly what it was they they did that can you imagine i like as a creator i don't i i i don't make music uh i'm i don't have that gift but like uh as a as somebody who like writes theater right like i i do my plays in a room with maybe 100 people watching or whatever if if i was to watch my script go up on Broadway, right? right? Like, like it would be hard to go back to the black, black box. box <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but the other side of that too, is, you know, those, you know, yeah. doing a, doing a special event or doing an, you know, even just like the difference between like a sold out opening night and yeah. then a run of a mill, you know, like a Thursday show yeah. or something. And, you know, e even in a, in a, in a 60 th seat theater or something, having that sold out opening night and then doing like a Sunday yeah. matinee for 12 people or yeah. something is, is a brutal shift. It's a brutal comeback <laughs> yeah. to earth. And yeah, I, I can't imagine that at the scale of, yeah. of, you know, getting Disney money to work with an orchestra right. and then just sitting back down in front of your computer with your keyboards and stuff and yeah. saying, we'll do this all the same way we used to. Yeah. Right? So uh, growing up, uh, making music in their bedrooms, listening to disco records from the 70s, Tomas and Guimon fantasized about recording an album the way Quincy Jones did. Just lush, huge, organic. And after Tron time, 
That fantasy seemed like an obtainable reality. The question dawned on them. What if they did that, but for Daft Punk? <laughs> Said Tomas, in the same way that Around the World was like making a chic record with a talk box and just playing the bass and on the synthesizer, since we couldn't afford to have Nile do it, the whole thing about They this did play the bass on the synthesizer? Uh, yeah. God damn it. I thought I I was so confident that yeah. they didn't. I can I can almost play the whole song at the BPM of the song. Really? It's so hard. And I was like, they're really good at bass yeah. because it's very hard for me to play I, it like and hit the beat. They I don't um uh I don't I don't know how actually proficient they are as musicians. They they know they can play. They can play. Oh, they can absolutely they can play. play riffs and stuff. But like yeah. I was when I was when I've been trying to learn the like secondary like groove baseline in around the world. Yeah. At the tempo of the song I was like they had to have recorded the slower and pitched up or this has to be like yeah. a Moog Voyager a like like on Discovery. Yeah. Um yeah, I I didn't even yeah, that was just part of the quote. Yeah. Hell yeah. Good good to know. Good Sorry. to know. <laughs> tangent. They, tangent. They did play on the that on the synth um, yeah, they can absolutely play instruments, but they're they're not like world class guitar players. And right. like you've mentioned before, there's there's a difference between being proficient at guitar. I can play guitar pretty well, but the yeah. the need for the mechanical timing yeah. in a Daft Punk song is requires a different level of proficiency than just even you know being the fact able that they're to... talking about parameters when yes. they say like you know the the magic of the '70s stuff is all these parameters. Mm-hmm. Guitar players don't talk about parameters. No, right. That's not a phrase guitar <laughs> right. players use. You no, don't think right. that way. When yeah. I for all the years I played like punk and mathy and indie stuff, I was never thinking of like what parameters am I adjusting? Yeah. That's that's a different that's yeah, a different brain. level. That's techno brain. It is. This is the this is his quote continued. The whole thing about this record is that it was not oh, we're going to do the next album. We just started to do sessions and recordings and felt we were fortunate enough to have them financial means to try, but also have certain exposure that could allow us to say, these are the people we love and respect. Let's see uh, what we can do with them and spread that outward towards people. Although only one song, Contact, contains a, contains a sample. Tomas, uh, in that Wax Poetics article, um, says that this whole thing is deeply rooted and indebted to the idea of sampling. They just went a different way with it. Instead of sampling previous works, they would gather their heroes, legendary session musicians, and celebrated contemporaries and sample their fucking brains. Yeah. That's what that's that's the idea behind Random Access Memories. Yeah. Um, so and and Daft Punk, curators of control. Artistic freedom fighters were in a perfect position to do exactly that. They had no label contract for the first time since signing with Soma Records as teenagers. From Soma and then to Virgin, they had always demanded complete control over their work, and now they actually answered to no one for the first time in their careers. There's nobody overseeing this at at this point. And more importantly... Uh, they had all the money that they would ever need to, to do this. Uh, uh, everything they produced for Random Access Memories was sa- self-funded. Said Tomas, we had the luxury of being able to tell ourselves that if it didn't suit us, we could throw everything in the trash. To have a record company behind us uh, uh, and to which we would have been accountable would have been scary. 
and I think like we, we talked about this before, you know, my, my theory, and I think Devin's theory as well is, you know, that's kind of what they did with the video that they had talked about on Alive 2007 yeah. in my theory, you know, that they, so they, 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 maybe they weren't happy with the video that they had talked about and then they scrapped yeah, it because they, they scrapped could, it, yeah. you know, I've, um, I, I, um, I mean, we talked about the, the money they put into the tour and stuff. Yeah. I'd never, Paul Hahn, their, their, um, manager around this time said in one of these interviews that that was also completely independent of a yes. record label. So yeah. the, the album live album came out on Virgin, mm-hmm. but the, the anything with the tour that was all independent as yeah. well. So they're, they're just in this mode at this point of like, we're, we're going to do what we want and we don't. And, and also I wanted to mention too, talking about, um, you know, consistency or, you know, that, that question you, you, are they betraying something or whatever in, in, what you described um, is almost like Devin called it a bat signal once with, with the song teachers, right? The yeah. song teachers is the call out, not knowing you can get the people yeah. you want, you know, and you work with some of your heroes there at, you know, Ram time, they're doing the same thing. Only now yeah. they're superstars and can just say, Hey, yeah. come work yeah. with us, right. which is a very cool thing. And again, it's very consistent. Yeah, no, there it's out. It's what they've all like. They, they, they celebrate their love of music by learning something, loving something and making their own thing of it. Yeah. Now they're at a point where they can spend a bunch of money to make their own version of those things with the people yeah. that made them. And that that's, and that's, that's what the idea started as a little kernel of a thing and exploded into I something mean, crazy. It's exactly what they do even, over and over you know, again. The, the, right. The, they the, have, they have a little thing, Little idea, and all of a sudden, they're spending over a million dollars to make a record with Sheik and Giorgio and all these. You know, you know it, and, it's crazy. It's crazy. In talking about sampling their, you know, their their heroes' brains or whatever, you know, even in the the title of the album, you know, they're they're accessing the memories of their yeah. heroes. It's a mechanical. They stumbled upon. Uh, you know, they stumbled upon the name. Random access memories, random access memory is a computer term. Mm -hmm. And they, they say that the point that they locked into that as a title was when these like recording sessions that they were kind of just like tootling around with locked into an idea. Mm -hmm. So they, for a long time from 2008 to well into like 2010, they were just like getting some people together and spending a bunch of money at these legendary recording studios and be like, we'll do something with all of this eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, when they locked into the name random access memories is when everything came into focus as an, a tight idea for, uh, for a whole record. No one has ever confirmed the exact amount that Tomas and Guimont spent on producing the record. It's well over a million dollars though. Well over, uh, said Tomas. Oh, specifically, he's like, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, whatever. It was over a million dollars. it was over a million dollars. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's over a million dollars. Don't think about it. Said Tomas. In the history of pop music, a lot of great records cost an enormous amount of money. There used to be a time where people that had the means to experiment would do it. You know, that's what this record is all about. Daft Punk, without anyone to keep tabs on the books as the price tag on the record soared, laid down orchestral orchestral arrangements for almost every track on the album, according to Pitchfork, before ditching most of it. That's an addiction that you get to at a certain (laughs) level, because I know there comes a point in a lot of like jazz artist careers 
where they do an album with strings and then suddenly they put strings on everything yeah. and then you have to dial it back because yeah. you hear that lush, gigantic 40 piece string section and you're like, oh my God, it's oh beautiful. My God. But it'll, it sounds yeah. chintzy at a certain point yeah. and you eventually have to pull back and it's, this album would be different if oh, it had if every Tron if, legacy level. Yeah. If all 13 tracks had orchestra, orchestra, uh, like an orchestra on them, it would be crazy. They, they recorded so, some element of orchestra for everything and then pared it all down to three or four tracks. It's like the spoil, that's crazy. The spoils before dying. Omar from the wire plays this jazz musician. They're begging him to do jazz with strings. He's like, that's not me. I can't do it. <laughs> but like, it like, changes you. Yeah. Yeah. How much money do you like? I, I have enough money to record 13 different sessions for 13 different tracks with a full orchestra and then only use three or four. What I like about like when Daft Punk recorded homework and discovery, they spent a ton of money on gear. Yeah. They had, they had, yeah. you know, at, at, in the mid nineties, probably $20,000 worth of synthesizers in their bedrooms. Dance artists like this aren't afraid to spend money on gear and then say like, I will experiment with yeah. my time and that's fine. I think a lot of folks who do this are afraid to commit to, all right, I'm going to be experimental with other people's talent and other yeah. people's time. Yeah. It's very scary to be like, all right, I'm going to hire an engineer who's going to put microphones on this and it might not work. Yeah. We had talked about this. I think it was this weekend a little bit where you had mentioned, you know, if you're a, a band and you get signed to a record and they give you whatever, they give you a thousand dollars to record in the studio, you know, that money goes to recording in the studio. But the same thing with an electronic artist, you know, that should go to the gear that should go to yeah. the gear that you're getting. If you're making it in, you know, in, in a laptop or computer home studio or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It's again, they're, they're consistent just at a, a level that's exponential to what we understand yeah, <laughs> as far yeah. as our resources we have available to us or whatever. Yeah. Um, like all of Daft Punk's enormous ideas, this one started pretty small. Uh, um, they wanted to, quote, make music that others might sample one day. Yeah. <laughs> Daft Punk had the idea of what if music could be from the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. What, I, if, like, what if songs were actually there from was, the seventies? There was like there was a um uh I, I took this out. There was a, a interviewer interview that was like um Niles is in his sixties. Niles in his sixties. Georgia's in his seventies. Uh, Paul Williams in his sixties. These session musicians are all 60, 70 years old. Like, what is your deal with working with so many old people? And they're like. Cause they were in, cause they were thirty when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. Like they were like this, like they're like duh, like the like coolest all of thing our, you can be yeah. when I'm a kid is thirty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're just like they made all this amazing no, I'm shit when we were I kids. Suck. I suck. <laughs> no, they were just like they're like yeah yeah. It, what do you mean these like, are our heroes from when we were kids? Yeah, it was like, you, yeah. What? It doesn't. Yeah, no. It like what it, a stupid uh, question. Yeah. It's like everything we love is from 1978. Duh. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It just so happens that all of the best music that's ever been recorded happened when I was 20 years old. <laughs> uh, yeah. People connect with stuff when they're young and yeah. they they carry it. These guys just made a career on tapping into that nostalgia. The boys started telling some people around the industry about their idea to take some of these demos that they had done and build them out naturally with re real musicians to try to develop a warmer, more human sound. Right now, a lot of electronic uh, recordings that are just like this kind of bounce to disc mm. uh, 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 a piece of data, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, that that a lot of this life right now 
is happening on stage and in festivals and in concerts and 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 where you know people are somehow much more excited by live experience that uh, by the records themselves you yeah. know where and there used to be a time where it was really pretty much the opposite you know at the time of really classic albums where uh, you know 30 years ago maybe even less you would have those classic crazy albums and then you would go to see a show and you would hope for the show to be maybe as good or <laughs> half as good as the recording itself. Yeah. Right now, we just spent five years working on this record trying to bring life back to uh, the art of recording. It was right there. It was right we there. Give what a back missed to me. opportunity. <laughs> wow. Maybe he, it's different in French to yeah. him or whatever. Yeah. Maybe that's how it translates. <laughs> it was right, give life back to music. It was right there. Um, that's comedy. I don't energy. know. <laughs> no, that there is an interesting. I I, I can get behind that. Oh, point. so that was that was Tomas. Yes. Uh, if if anybody's out there uh, um, doesn't know their voices. Yeah, I, I mean, I, one of the one of the things we did this weekend, right? You know, we listened to Escapades. We listened to uh, No Geography. Doesn't by our lives fucking fun? Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, like I We're can like I can time. agree with that. You know, I, I do love I do love an album. You know, I I, yeah. I mentioned this trip I, I I took down to Louisiana and back. Uh, driving through 11 states, like close to 40 hours of driving. Uh, I don't know what I would have done without uh, a ton of legendary epic uh, epic records, but also, you know, I, I, we, we love listening to, to sets and live shows. Oh, so yeah. there's, you know, I, I get that. I get it. Oh, yeah. Um, there is what, a disposable track mentality to this music. Do you we, view your stuff in, right? Because if you view, like, I'm going to put four minutes of music together that every DJ can plug into their set and it's going to be incredible. Yes. That's, I think that you see that a lot Yeah, when you listen to the retrospectives of the blog house years of the UK. Oh, yeah. All those guys are like, we were bouncing these like distorted, dirty, like grainy MP3s onto a CD at four o'clock so we could take it to the club and see how it worked at nine o'clock. Yeah. And it's a sad issue of like, can I put out the track that's going to light all the other DJs on fire? It's or... a very different attitude than... Can I put together 50 minutes of music that belongs together here? Right. You know, we, yeah. None of these tracks are built, you know, none of these, these are, are not built like, for, for someone else to yeah. play them at a club. How many, but honestly, think about like Get Lucky was an enormous global hit. How many times have you ever heard it in a dance club? I don't think I ever have. It's not no. like, you know, it's not, it's no. not club music. Right. And they didn't, they weren't, that's not what they were trying to do here. They were trying to make, they were trying to make timeless music and um you know i i think they succeeded I, yeah. yeah amen to that uh one of the first people to hear this idea from the boys was chris caldwell a legendary music director who has composed music for ev from for everyone from dizzy gillespie to the muppets whoa um you might uh you, the, you know the muppet Wait, band uh, the, who, they, who is this chris caldwell and in, in what context are we talking about him? Sorry, I he is, he he is one of the first guys to hear from the the boys that 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 they want to work with session musicians and try to like turn these demos they were working on into fully okay. realized things. And the Muppets, but so uh, and dizzy. That's crazy. Dizzy, yeah. Everybody, Holy this moly. guy, like this guy, he's just one of those like background yeah. guys that has done everything. He he is he was Jim 
Henson's inspiration for the piano player in the Muppet Band. That's, the guy, like, that, that rocks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and conceivably a, a Paul Williams link there, so, too. Well, we'll get oh, there. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Caldwell struck a chord with the robots when, upon hearing the idea, he mentioned they should get in touch with his Muppets collaborator, Paul Williams. There you go. He mentioned that to them? Yeah. Little did he know. That they're lo- <laughs> lunatics for that. <laughs> I almost said losers well, for it. They were probably we like, they were like, they were like, you mean Paul Williams from Phantom yeah, of the Paradise? The little did hey, Caldwell we didn't know. mention that we're crazy. <laughs> Daft Punk may never be, Daft Punk may never have been a thing without Williams' dark musical masterpiece, Amen. The Phantom of the Paradise, yep. which they saw 20 times together as kids. Somebody needs to talk to their parents yeah. about a And why did they let that happen? Oh, man. Uh, and uh, uh, we will probably do a bonus episode I'm of the show s- at some I'm point gonna, and talk I'm gonna, about. I'm going to commit to it on the air. Go we're going to do yeah. a You Start It at a certain yeah. point and you start the movie and we're going to do a commentary like you can listen to our commentary in real time with the movie we watched, at some oh, yeah. point we, we watched it do together that. and it is unsettling it is <laughs> it's an unsettling Disturbing. movie but it's also deep it helped me understand where these guys came from artistically on a much deeper level Amen it's brian de palma doing some of the yeah. most De Palma stuff I've ever yeah. seen. Uh, it's, and it, it's deeply, be a blast. it deeply influenced their artistic endeavors for their entire career, even forming the genesis of, for their ideas to cover their faces with metal masks. Yep. It's, this that movie is that deeply ingrained in Tomas and It'll be fun for us to watch it together and riff on it, yeah. and it'll be fun for. Uh, to us to it. do this with yeah. whoever listens to this because it's a really weird, cool Daft Punk movie that we can all watch together. Yeah, it's, I, I know I say it's disturbing, but it's, I mean, it's a movie that I enjoy. It was I, I fun, enjoy yeah. it. It's, it's compelling. It's thought provoking. And I, again, like Andy said, it gave said, me I a nightmare. It. It, is it. Very, <laughs> it is very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, it's supposed to be. And very cool. It's very psychedelic it's and every, funny, too. It's a uh, rock opera. Everyone who loves Daft Punk should watch it because yeah. it, it really helps you inform it's where It's a Rosetta Stone for this group. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, so I'm pretty sure that Williams accidentally broke the news of the record more than three years before it was released <laughs> in an interview with a guy named Eddie Muentes, who has been posting videos for 15 years and has 173 subscribers <laughs> on YouTube. This is, this is this clip from more than three years before Random Access Memories came out. And I'm writing an album with a group called Daft Punk. Daft Punk is a stadium act from France. He describes them as a stadium act. As a stadium act. Oh my god, this this is a man so far removed. Daft Punk, they're a stadium act from France. That's a guy who's who's been writing hit songs for the Muppets since 1971. I cannot cannot find a single (laughs) reference to Random Access Memories or the fact that they were working on an album any anywhere before this clip. That means this news didn't go anywhere, right? That, no, because this guy has no one would know. subscribers on YouTube. I, I, yeah, I'm writing a record with these fellas. <laughs> uh, they like they love me. What I'm doing is stadium act. Stadium act Daft, 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 this, this Daft is, Pranks or something. Daft Dark Pranks. Pranks. This is Daft Punk's <laughs> version of that time Mark Ruffalo accidentally spoiled the fact that everyone dies at the end of Aven- yeah. Avengers Infinity War and that Disney buried that clip. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. He's on like the Today Show um, with Don Cheadle. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you just got to see the end of this next one. It's crazy. Everyone dies. And she was like, shut, 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 that's and like, with these, that's what happened with um, the director, the call me by your name guy. Right. 
they were going to do a score for his movie. And he's like, yeah, I think Daft Punk's going to work on my movie. Oh, and then yeah. they like shut it down. Yeah. They keep working with these old guys who like, they put Please a microphone. Can... <laughs> they're, they're 80, they're 70 years old. And they, they don't get it. They don't, it's not, they don't have to keep shit a secret. Cause that's, who cause they're old as hell. And they, yeah. they, they've been doing this for six years. They're like, yeah, I'm working on some new songs with some guys. It doesn't mean anything yeah. to him. <laughs> no, this album was, uh, so that, that's the first mention of it. This album was done in deep secrecy. Uh, other than that, uh, other than that, <laughs> other than him breaking the news to Eddie Muentes on his YouTube page, that's incredible. That video has like a has stadium like, act. That's such a funny way to describe yeah, this. Uh, band. This, uh, this uh, Daft Punk, the stadium act from France. They went on one. They only toured one time. Yeah, <laughs> really? I know. I know. That that was another. Uh, I I found some quotes uh, from Random Access Memories era stuff where they were like, I mean the the Alive 2007 tour just completely changed the game for us because the last time that we had performed in front of people, it was for like 1,200 people. Right. And then we go out and there's 40,000 people in front of us. And they were like, it just, it changed this thing from like, you know, it felt like we were somehow ahead of the rest of the industry. And we, it, it was hard for us to grasp exactly our impact and then to see 40,000 people right. was like, Oh my God, like this is what we did. They, that was like the first time they yeah. it connected with them. And that's another, I think that's another inspiration point for them to really fucking swing for the next one. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you know what a thousand people feels like, you yeah. know what I mean? You know what, uh, when we're at the magic stick and it's sold yeah. out, that's 400 people and downstairs in the majestic. Yeah. That's, I don't know, you know, 1800, yeah. 2200. Yeah, I think it's 1800 or something. Like that. that feels really different than Joe Lewis was 12,000. Yeah. So to go from like, you know, 40, the, yeah. for, like downstairs at the Majestic yeah. or upstairs at the Magic Stick to four Joe Lewis's. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. to half the big and, house. And that's crazy. I know. Yeah. And they, yeah. To put it in so very think, Detroit terms. Like <laughs> half of the, it's like half the big house. These are all venues and sports arenas here in Michigan. You guys get it, right? Look it up. It's like four times Joe Lewis or half the big house. It's, very, it's, it's almost completely full Ford Field. <laughs> Oh it's God. it's pretty much Comerica Park on the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like two it's like two Spartan stadiums. <laughs> All of our Detroit fans are very happy right now. Everybody else is like, "Fuck yeah. you." Um, it's like yeah, but I think clutch cargos. <laughs> I think that that I think that that one that one helped them click into what exactly that they had built over twenty years, and then I think it also gave them this idea like they should really fucking go for it the next time out um uh that's that's, that's uh 100 <laughs> ant holes that's 100 ant holes <laughs> now you're speaking my language yeah. there you go yeah <laughs> jesus uh there was work to be, be, be done before williams and other big name collaborators like niles uh, nile rogers for all williams and panda bear came on board uh everything daft punk had ever created together started with the same three drum machines the tr-808 the tr-909 and the lind drum said tomas listening to a different set of music from that mid-70s to that early 80s era we felt like we were being choked up by sidechain compression we wanted that airy open sound for drums so that was the first guide uh, it, which is interesting uh, yeah. way for them to look at sidechain because it was like literally sidechains like literally their start. As and that's it, the in the Sound City documentary. It takes place in what is essentially a strip mall in Van Nuys. And this recording council, this Neve they have, 
It's a very specially designed thing by this British engineer. And the reason the studio is so compelling is that even though it is a square room, it is a perfect room for drums. Yeah. In in this strip mall in Van Nuys, Fleetwood Mac meets Stevie Nicks and um, Lindsey Buckingham. They meet in the studio and then record Rumors. They record all the Tom Petty records. They record Nevermind by Nirvana. Man. It's an incredible place. The reason the studio works so well is this mixing desk. And because the drums sound so big, the decay is so airy in the room. Yeah. That like Dave Grohl is playing the riff from Smells Like Teen Spirit in the room for the documentary. And it sounds magical. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can you can record they were saying in the documentary, you can record guitars anywhere. Yeah. You can mic an amp and it sounds fine. Having a room where you can get those big airy drums is very special. And you don't have that when you're playing with yeah. A, yeah, you don't. Computer. And I we have we have we're gonna get into drum drum oh recording. God, I can't <laughs> wait. What a treat. Yeah, we're gonna get into drum recording. You better believe that. <laughs> uh, if they wanted to imbue the new record with a human touch, they would need to start with the rhythm section. Caldwell had more connections than just Paul Williams. Said Tomas, Chris is one of the best old school session players, and he basically knows everyone that's left. So when we started to tell him about our idea of experimenting, taking the demos that we had done, kind of replaying them and starting to jam to see how we could do it, he was like, oh, yeah, let me call some people. Uh, Omar Hakim, uh, who has worked with Madonna, Food Fighters, Miles Davis, Journey, Celine Dion, and too many people to name over the course of an amazing 40-year career, was the first person Caldwell called. Uh, uh, He is one of the most legendary session drummers ever. And uh, here's a clip uh, of him talking about working with Daft Punk. The call came kind of as a surprise to me because, first of all, you know, they're they're an EDM band, you know, an electronic dance music band. Okay. So I was like, why are they calling me? You know, because they always use drum machines and loops and samples, and I thought it was a kind of a weird phone call to get. And then I thought, okay, so maybe they want me to play electronic drums because I also play and program electronic drums. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. They, maybe they heard my work doing that and they want that for their record. But then they were like, no, we want you to play acoustic drum set. Daft Punk wants acoustic drums on a record? I thought that was so weird, right? Um, so the session wasn't a typical recording session because normally in a recording session you, you go in the studio, you learn a song, and you play it from top to bottom, right? But what they were doing was they were um, showing me these kind of riff ideas that were, that were only four bars or eight bars long, and then they wanted to jam on them for like five, ten minutes. And so it was like a live sampling session, really, more so than going in and learning songs. Mm-hmm. So basically, I didn't know what the record was going to sound like, <laughs> because all I would do was play five minutes of one concept. Okay. They, you, get, you get a tempo, and then it's one bass line, one keyboard part, and you just play. Then, and we did this for a week. Oh, wow. So there were ton, there was tons of material that was created. So they were just recording all of it. And, just, then, and then they put it all together. So that song, uh, that was the hit, they basically just grabbed the drums from here, keyboard part from there, or bass from there, and kind of constructed this idea. So it was really... Interesting. Isn't that cool? I'm glad that they caught up with him at that food court. Or yeah, the Mall of America sounds no, no, incredible. No, 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 no. 
That you could look it up on YouTube. Yeah. That is like a four minute video interview with Omar Hakim. He is in a department store. It starts with him. We sh- both said the mall. <laughs> yeah, there we go. that's incredible. That's it great. starts with him shirtless, <laughs> and it becomes very evident within the first thirty seconds of the video that he's trying on clothes in the middle of a department store because he puts on this crazy shirt. And then as he, that guy's asking the second question, he walks behind a a some sort of um like shelving unit in the store and he's very visibly taking off his pants and trying on another I pair hope, of pants okay, while he's that, getting video interviewed. If that's him being eccentric, that's cool. <laughs> if that is a premise for a web series, like I'll take you out and I'll buy you 200 bucks worth of clothes oh, man. and we interview you while you try them on is very cool. I hope that that's true. I, re- I, get, I get what he's talking about here because it's very fun to get kind of like a groove of a song. You get a couple bars going and and then you just like loop it and then let's play bass over it for five minutes and yeah. see if I can get a cool thing. Yeah, I mean, let's you play. literally just said this to me yeah. like a week and a half ago that you were trying to figure out a bass part and you just ran the loop for five minutes yeah. and ran, just ran, play it. ran I, the record. Yeah, and I recorded. just want to point out that Omar Hakim has worked with every big name artist that you could possibly name over the course of the last 40 years. He's He's done drums on thousands of records. He is surprised at the approach that Daft Punk took on this. Like that, that is where that, that is, uh, it is hard to surprise somebody with this much. It's hard to surprise somebody who will try on clothes during a video. <laughs> yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. That really rocks. It is. It's hard. I, I it's hard to surprise somebody that's completely unfazed. Like, I really hope it is. That's too. just him doing that. Cause he wanted he's my to, hero he is. Fucking, he's like my yeah. kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely he is. Uh, um, that's, I, I, that's I thought that energy. that was like a very enlightening view on what, what they were doing. Um, that that somebody like uh, Omar Hakim would be surprised by something that they were doing in, in that moment, uh, uh, and I thought that that was pretty enlightening about how that they how they constructed these. Yeah, and again, point you know just just to to, to leave this comment right here, another mark on the uh, this is consistent with everything they've ever Absolutely. done. Absolutely, uh, another another tally mark on that. Um, just a. Out heightened version of what yeah, they were sampling yeah. we're just sampling new stuff yeah and then we're gonna you know that's a very cool they, way to look they, at it. yeah what they they got the best session session musicians in the world together they jammed out and then they sampled their own their own original content yeah uh nathan east has played bass guitar on more than 1500 albums and is considered uh the most recorded bass player in the history of music Kanye West's nemesis. I'm actually the most unrecorded bass player in the history of music. John Robinson has uh, holds a similar distinction for drums and is most known for his work with acts like Michael Jackson and Steve Winwood. Bassist uh, James Genus uh, also got a call from Caldwell uh, with Daft Punk on synths. Caldwell, Hakeem, Robinson, and Genus filling out the room. Tomas and Guimond laid down their first live studio sessions in Daft Punk history excluding their work on uh, Tron. Uh, they were creating rhythm and drums that would be the foundation for the entire record in these recordings. They had a synth, a Wurlitzer. So they, they shipped their Wurlitzer from Paris for these recordings. Uh, Tomas it is a completely uh, custom unit that they built every piece out on and uh, uh, 
Tomas was like, it's some like Wendy Carlo shit is what, yeah. how he described it. Yeah. Just this crazy contraption that, that they that they put together. Uh, they had two drums and a bass. Said Tomas, it started with these jams that would somehow uh, become the canvas for the entire record later. At the be- very beginning, what was so fun about it was being friends with Paul Williams and Chris and how Chris called these guys. I don't think they really knew about us or who we were, but they were like, yeah, let's jam like the old days. <laughs> Uh, Tomas found that working with live musicians offered, quote, an infinity of, uh, of nuance in the shuffles and the grooves. These things are impossible to create with machines. That's a Devin sentence yeah, right there. Right? <laughs> an infinity of nuance, nuance in the shuffles the... and the grooves? Shuffle, shuffle and groove. Yeah. On, so, like, if you have an MPC, yeah. MPC has shuffle and <laughs> grooves into it yeah. and it's swing. Yeah. So you can turn up the MPCs like, the eighth note shaker groove or swing or shuffle. And when you're in Ableton now, you apply the mechanical shuffle and groove from these old drum machines in Ableton. And all of that is to mimic the human the old, feeling of yeah. what it's like to actually play a drum kit. Yeah. And I, I love playing drums, but I'm not a proficient enough drummer yeah. to do that. So you spend all this, when you have a Lin drum machine, you spend all this time trying, trying to make, to, it, sound to make not, it sound human. You're trying like to make it's it not sound a Lin not, drum yeah. machine. Yeah. Right. I'm like, and that's exactly what they wanted to fight against with this record. Yeah. Right. They, they talked over and over again around this cycle about like, wouldn't it be cool if we inspired a bunch of 18 year olds to pick up actual instruments again? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's what they wanted to do. Those early rhythm sections were recorded in Los Angeles. They recorded most of the vocals in Paris, but they also laid down horns, choirs, orchestras, electronic elements, guitars, a whirlwind of instrumentation and techniques. All told, the robots recorded at five legendary studios over a five-year period. A few songs on the album have elements from all of these sessions. There are songs on here that that span five years, two continents, like uh, uh, crazy stuff. Wow. This is a tangent. I'll be very quick. Go listen to Petu, the new Palm Tracks single. Yeah. If you're if you're listening to this podcast, he's a, he's a guy who who is infinitely inspiring me. I'm so obsessed with his his DJing and his sets, and he recorded that with an incredible vocalist and an incredible with incredible live brass. And it was like three continents of people working yeah. together to do yeah. the single, and it sounds great. And the live horns sound immaculate. That's and incredible. How often in in dance music do you hear someone who recorded live horns for their track? No, I I it's very cool. I think I think that there's a chance right now that we're gonna start hearing more and more of it. Yeah, I think especially yeah, so. especially like coming out of COVID stuff. I think yeah. that there's been a lot of people spending a lot of time in studios and in their home studios or working in small groups uh, and trying to think outside the box in this time when they yeah. can't can't really perform also to tangent on your tangent uh another set we spent a lot of time with that i'll shout out right now is palm tracks God, uh, palm yeah. tracks mm-hmm. boiler room set yeah. is one of my favorites right now that devin it's devin turned me into my brain and man. it's so it's one we've listened to a totally. bunch uh, all told, they recorded at Capitol Studios, the Henson Recording Studios, which is the former legendary A&M studio, and Conway Recording Studios in Hollywood. Then they traveled to New York City to record at Electric Lady uh, and uh, went home to Paris to use gang recording studios. I walked into the lobby of Electric Lady yeah. one time. So, yeah, if you if you are a music nerd, you know, like, Electric Lady is like I lived Hendrix. in that neighborhood, yeah. and one time I was... Uh, day drinking and I was like I should just there's Walk gotta be in. a reception area right and I opened the door and I said hello and she's like what are you do-? Was, what are you doing <laughs> I was she gonna said, open the door and hey, then I was like doing? oh that's supposed to be here hey what are you doing gotta go 
Uh, that's like when Bart walks into Mad Magazine. <laughs> Save it for Homer. <laughs> 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 said sound engineer uh, Mick Guzowski we from we Monsters all, Inc yeah Mike Guzowski from <laughs> <laughs> I got a big laugh from me yeah dude I love Monsters oh, Inc boy <laughs> uh, said Mick Guzowski we'd, uh, we'd often just let the tape roll uh, really allowing these musicians to run free and put their hearts and soul into these ideas it was an incredible experience to hear these musicians who have played on many many albums that we love to just do their thing Caldwell uh, had transcribed some of their ideas into sheet music for the musicians to follow other ideas happened in the spur of the moment. Recalled Tomas, I remember going up to Omar Hakim and humming this really complicated drum and bass programming, and he's like, like this, and then Tomas made drumming noises. And he's and then he continues, he's doing it exactly like I'd hum, but like ten times beyond. It felt like, whoa, what have we been missing out uh, on being limited by our own programming skills? He probably did two or three takes of that part. So they did a yeah. lot of Tomas and Gimon did a lot of humming to these guys and then they would recreate it for all of t all of all of drum and bass. We've been sampling, you know, the AMN break and the think break and, and these like 10 breaks from the 70s. It's like there are people out there who can play you new breaks. Yeah, yeah. you can go get new breaks. Yeah, they're, they're available to you because they're really talented drummers. Yeah, this is Tomas. The concept around this record was really to see if there was still um, this opportunity to look at all these you know, classic recordings that had been made in the, over the last 50 years and also look at how music was made today and music is made today primarily with computers mm. and, and laptops and see if it was still possible to to make music with people and to make pop music and dance music with people to you know the first step of that concept of that experiment was saying okay you know can we replace the drum machine with a with a live drummer mm. Sometimes he really does sound like a robot that's trying to be human like Data on like the next generation <laughs> or he's, something. Like he's incredibly philosophical. <laughs> he really is. Uh, uh, there were a couple uh, profile pieces of these guys around this time. Uh, they they opened up to a couple big magazines in a way that they had never done before. Yeah. Uh, and like GQ, Pitchfork, they all made a point like Tomas will like sit there for maybe 10 or 15 seconds sometimes before – answering a question and then he'll talk for three minutes <laughs> because he just like he just the way he processes information like he is like a deeply intellectual person yeah because he's trying to remember the english word for <laughs> like you know some highway or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> how do you say keep uh, um, uh there was one of the one of the i can't remember which profile um the the writer was like i i i wanted to ask them about the helmets and like and they love superman superman's their favorite superhero uh, so he was like they love superman yeah superman's their favorite very funny. <laughs> superman's their favorite uh so uh the writer asks like do you guys ever feel like i gotta put this fucking cape on again and then Gimon looked at tomas and like asked him something and then tomas had to translate the question because Gimon was like fucking what what did he fucking what did he say fucking what was the thing like <laughs> the, he's like fucking cape like cape like superhero like and then the, in french he's like fucking cape like he was saying like bad like like cape it's like and then he's like no we don't ever feel like that and then they were like superman has to be superman we get to put these on whenever we want and, and when we don't have them on 
nobody would ever know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they don't. They never looked at the robots like a burden or something they had to do. Like like Superman, it's, it's not a burden to know that your dad is Santa. <laughs> I often find that <laughs> just leave that. I often uncontextualized find, the I often find, I often find that when you read, because I've read some interviews um, that they did in French that are translated, and those are are very those are those are a certain thing. Yeah, I find often when you have native French speakers speaking English, it has this kind of like lofty yeah. uh, air to it because the language is, is used in a different and sometimes simplified way. So it becomes these big statements like music is the form of love. Yeah. And, and I'm like, God, that's really poetic. But then when you read someone talking in French, they're like, they're, they're saying the exact same things <laughs> yeah. that we do. It, yeah. just, I, I, it adds an air of fun and mystery to a lot um, of this stuff. I can I cannot remember where I read it. I read something about Daft Punk one time where somebody was like, Part of their allure and appeal is that these are French guys who are translating their lyrics into English. And just like you were saying, like it airs, yeah. it adds this like lofty, like this lofty appeal, like this magical thing because they're, they're French lyrics trans translated into English where it's like, it almost feels like this unattainable yeah. beauty. <laughs> yeah. There are a few artists who are producing a lot of, um, Producing p producing dance music for predominantly English audiences that are using um, the language they grew up with and they grew up in other countries, and I find that that adds an other yeah. that appeals to American listeners because they they don't have to hear the lyrics and think about like you know lyrics can be very yeah. cheesy and off putting, but if it's if it's othered <coughs> in some way, yeah it removes that and it, it makes the voice and the lyrics and instrumentation. And I, I think that's what Daft Punk is really good at. Yeah. Uh, point of clarification here. When Random Access Memories was released, the consensus talking point seemed to be Daft Punk made an analog record. That somehow these titans of technology had turned their back on the new age techniques that had launched them into superstardom in the first place. But that is not true, like at all. It Rather, sounds, it sounds incredibly modernly produced. Yes, that's so. That's what we're going to get into. Rather, Tomas and Gimon were thinking uh, about how entangled the entire process had become uh, with these programs on a laptop. Said Tomas, "These are turnkey systems. They come with preset banks and sounds. They're not inviting you to challenge the systems themselves or giving you you the ability to showcase your personality and individuality." They wanted to figure out how to do that again. So if everyone could make music at home now, what could Daft Punk add by doing the same thing? Uh, they readily admit that the composition uh, – so so here – yeah. Uh, now, how do they use technology on this, on this album? They readily admit that the composition of Random Access Memories could not have been possible 20 or 30 years ago. On uh, one track alone, Touch – uh, with its darkly moody intro inspired by the Phantom of the Paradise and its deliciously hooky disco vibe and powerhouse journey to a softly lonely ending that was comprised with uh, more than 250 individual tracks, all gloriously, gloriously and seamlessly meshed uh, with the most celebratory use of knobs and computers showcased on the record. All of this had to be edited and submixed into Pro Tools because the team was still using an HD3 rig, which only allowed 96 tracks. Uh, so they like they had to like 
they were mixing in in this HD3 rig. They had to then submix so that they could like multiply the number of tracks that they could use on this thing. Uh, uh, it was completely uh, a technologically produced uh, song, and a lot of that flies throughout the record. Here's Tomas again. There was definitely a very extensive use of the computer in the record itself, but mm. it was really uh, a certain use of technology that would be more invisible uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some some sort of under the hood uh, use. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you take um, a track like uh, "A Touch," which is the track we did with Paul Williams, mm-hmm. which actually sound pretty timeless in essence. Um, you know, that that's a track that was recorded with more than 250 tracks. <laughs> so when you have 250 tracks, unless uh, uh, there was a possible way, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago to sync up 10. 24 tracks uh, uh, analog tape machines which was not really possible at that time it was interesting to be able to use um, uh, technology and and really feel like those songs and those tracks Mm. could not have been made uh, 20 years or 30 years ago but where in the same way that maybe Peter Jackson uh, you might use technology in an invisible way in Lord of the Rings Rings, or in I don't know in Game of Thrones where you have like dragons flying and you're not supposed to see that it's computers Mm -hmm. we really felt okay we're going to use technology but we're actually going to hide it because what we're trying to put up is uh, uh, somehow more uh, some sort of a fantasy, and uh, and 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 technology is is outdated so fast today mm-hmm. as such mm-hmm. a small shelf life that. Uh, we started really to realize that if we keep on creating work of art where technology in the forefront, it, it's very likely that the work of art themselves and the music might just be outdated as fast as the technology itself. Nerd. Nerd. <laughs> uh, that's very funny to compare your music to the dragons in Game of Thrones. I mean, there oh, is an also, element. There, like... So that last, that last sentiment in that, in that quote, yeah. that, if you're if the technology is pushed to the forefront of the music and the techniques that it will sound outdated that is that is the history of electronic music yeah, right? we that, talked that, about every, particularly discovery every 5 years right the the electronic music of the la- of 5 years ago sounds outdated yeah i mean and it's, it's techno very true. to me sounds timeless in a lot of ways yeah. i hear a techno track from 1988 yeah techno track from 2013 it all sounds like one thing to me yeah uh, on the more house side of it that is where i hear i can hear a song and be like i know what year this is from discovery is a prime example of just being the perfect encapsulation of the technology of the era yeah and that is a, that's that's very interesting for him to say it he like they know they that know because they've done it they a know a bunch of times absolutely yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't I would like to also point out that there are a ton of, you know, the idea of of there are a ton of heavily produced albums of, of using, you know, guitars and drums and stuff in other genres as well. You know, like I, I you know, I like the the way that he's talking about this and stuff, but like that's the reality of the production method nowadays, yeah. whether you're in electronic mu- music or not, is you probably have a big computer and a big program and a, yeah. a ton of different tracks and a lot of splicing and a lot of, uh, you know, you know, looping and, and all that, that fun stuff. Um, so, so, you know, it is, um, it is a, you know, again, a mentality that's existed in a way since the, you know, the early days of, 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 you know, what we're talking about, but you know, this idea of, 
you know, back in whenever, you know, in, in, in the seventies and the eighties or whatever, you know, whatever number of track recording, you know, you get to your track maximum, you flatten that down into one track and you add more tracks. Uh, You know what I mean? Like that idea is, is kind of the same method of thought they're using, but with today's technology, which is very cool. It's a, it's a, again, it's a very cool way. One of the compelling things about the sound city documentary was they were talking about, um, the records they produced there in the seventies that were these gigantic hits. And then in the eighties music started to pivot to this hyper produced sound because in the eighties, these, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? I get hair metal bands, I guess. Yeah. Um, every snare hit sounded gigantic. Every, yeah. every part of it was, it was very maximalist. And they were talking about how sound city was struggling to keep up during this because this is a 24 track board and they were going to record it in the room and you were going to record these in one takes oftentimes, yeah. you know, it's like the whole group together is going to record it in one take where the music was getting hyper produced and that that's a cycle we've seen a bunch of times music gets really hyper produced and then gets stripped down so and then gets hyper produced and then gets stripped I down. Just, I read something very interesting about this music specifically where, okay. So disco uh, becomes this like natural organic movement in the seventies and then reaches just like global popularity. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's all of this money and all of this opulent recording and people are having full bands and crazy studio money and just like dumping money into the studio to to record everything and make natural sounds and everything and then disco demolition might night happens disco sucks it all crashes and all of a sudden all of that money and all of the, the those people willing to invest in like the top end recording stuff died Mm-hmm. And now where do all those people interested in those sounds go? They go to sampling old disco records because they can't afford. The money was there. They can't. Af- they, there's no money. There, there is no yeah. money. They can't afford to have a 40 piece band in a studio and record. So they sample old stuff and make a new thing in their bedroom from it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, everything ramps back up where now uh, these house music, this house music inspired by the opulent recording of the seventies like ramps back up to where now we can, yeah, do it again. It's, it's, it's true. I mean that it sounds lush, you know, whatever you're trying to do on your computer is not going to sound as big as, you know, a 10 piece horn section for some funk band. Uh, almost everything that was recorded was recorded on both Ampex reels, analog Mm -hmm. and digitally, digitally with pro tools. They wanted both. Uh, for everything. It's like Tommy Wiseau when he recorded yeah. it both with a 35 yeah. millimeter camera <laughs> yeah. and an HD camcorder for the room. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh, they, along with legendary sound engineer, uh, Mick, uh, Guzowski <laughs> and Sully from Sully would listen to each element, uh, uh, on both recordings and decide which one sounded better, better. So they would, they would record like a, like one guitar lick and then they would sit there and listen to it analog and then they would listen to it digitally and they would be like well that sounds warmer or that sounds crisper which one should we and they would like just talk every single element i get it because sometimes (laughs) warmth is not they like part of the thing that they love is this control and sometimes warmth is something you can't control when you're going to tape so it's like 
is this an element I need a lot of control over or do I like this for its warmth? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like the idea of like, again, they're thinking in terms of parameters. Right. And so there are different parameters you they've know, made this they've, per- yeah. analog and digital is now a parameter to them because right. they have one exactly of the other. Yeah. A- analog and parameter the location this you know all of it it's it's very cool you know that's a cool point that you pointed out yeah. earlier that they are they are thinking of different parameters than conventional they musicians they are, can't stop thinking are. of music differently no i don't think they can that's a dare that's dare yeah. i can't stop thinking of music differently <laughs> uh uh he's like another legendary background music guy he's worked with earth wind and fire michael Jan- jackson quincy jones like Boom. all of these like boo <laughs> sully randall, sully randall, randall. Yeah. <laughs> that slug woman number one i'm pretty sure it's john goodman in there too yeah right <laughs> yeah <laughs> the monsters ink bit's gone way too far the mo- monsters ink gone wild uh, <laughs> yeah i'm sorry for interrupting you with this garbage Guz, uh, Guzowski was not the only sound engineer on the album. Also, uh, Pete Franco, um, who's done a ton of work in the industry, was another one. Uh, um, this is a longer quote by him, but it just kind of illuminates how they were doing things. We did things like record into Pro Tools and then transfer the material to tape at various different levels and then bring it back into Pro Tools. <laughs> we then compared this with the recordings the same of, of the same material directly to tape and then transferred that to Pro Tools again. We wanted to see what the different combinations did and what uh, how tape could uh, get us uh, uh, and how tape could get us into certain sounds. One of our conclusions was that we liked the sound we got when we went straight to tape and then brought it to Pro Tools. We liked how tape changed the uh, the shape of the sound. It's a cool journey to understand what analog does. It wasn't just a matter of trying to find the sounds of the past, but also trying to achieve the best sound possible today we decided from the get-go that we wanted analog to be a big part of the project and during the first recording uh with live musicians we got there so that that's like that's just crazy met, nerd sound I stuff met, uh when I, I had an internship at a film development company that made indie films in new york and we met with a post-production supervisor who had worked on a bunch of sofia coppola movies and he was talking about he was working on the most recent peter bogdanovich film and he was asking us about some stuff. He wanted our input. It was very cool of him. He was talking about these weird years where people were still doing analog because film has a very similar trajectory. Absolutely. He was talking about the process of what it meant to shoot on film during some of these periods in the early aughts where you would shoot on film and then you would have it processed and then made digital. So you could edit it digitally. Right. But then to put it back to film for the theaters, you had to reprint it to film. So it's the process of you shoot on film, you go have it processed, you work on it digitally, Man. and then you process it back to reels of film. And what, it's like it's the same kind of what thing. To, what era? What era is this? Do you he was talking about when I was doing the internship. It was 2013. All right, so this is the literally yeah. the same he time was, for film. He was talking about a few years before. Yeah. Well, but, this is two, this is 2010. Yeah. So this yeah. Like, so like for same, this, it's like yeah. you record to tape, then you digitalize it, edit it in Pro Tools, and then press it to vinyl. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like it's it's heady to think about. You go from analog to digital to analog. Yeah. So um, these really early sessions, 
the boys brought in just like a shitload of like keyboards and synths and stuff and we're just jamming for these sound engineers to try to like lay down something uh uh franco said the synth arpeggio in the Giorgio Moroder track was one of the ideas we recorded during the first sessions with layers of that arpeggio played via MIDI through different synths to create that great sound. Gimana Tomas are masters at manipulating gear and getting great vibes from it. These were great, fun, very loose writing sessions. And to my surprise, quite a bit of the themes and even some of the parts ended up in the final mixes. The best part's the beginning when you tool around. The worst part is when you get to the like... All right, let's get it all into yeah. the songs. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's got to be the funnest part. Like, let's write this crazy arpeggiated riff and play it on a bunch of synthesizers and shit. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. That sounds like a blast. But they, these dudes, also love doing the the really intense, like intricate part. Right? They. Do you think they love it? I do. Or do you think that is just they know that? Because I, I get it but it's hard for me to imagine like at that at, yeah. at a certain point in the process that is such a a, a chore but, right? but so so think- they did the incredibly incredibly immaculately elaborate recording of discovery right where we talked on our discovery episode where every single sound every single thing that they did was uh was like every sound on that record is intentional, right? Every tiny thing that was like microscopically mulled over. So then they go the other way with uh, with human after all. I think that there's a very distinct reason why they come back to that. But is it because you like the product you produce at the end or you like the process? Cause I, think, I know they like the product. I think they like the product. Cause so now, so now uh, homework intricate discovery intricate they go a different way then they work for 18 months with an 85 piece orchestra and after that they do they work on this for five years like i think i think that they having legitimately someone else enjoy to it. help fine tune it is yeah. also incredible like oh, having yeah. engineers yeah. to help you achieve those things yes. has got to be very cool I think and, the and, others- I, and there's there's some i have some quotes from from these guys coming up where i think that this recording this is some of their favorite, like their funnest, most favorite memories of their entire career is just is just working on this. And I think like you know there there is an element of like it's a ton of fun to jam and and create stuff and get the initial you know the initial rhythms and the initial melodies figured out and stuff like that. But I think like f- for me like what are the what have been the barriers to the final product for me in my life in the past? And I think a lot of it is circumstantial in my life. Like I I, yeah. I hate sitting around twisting little tiny knobs and fine tuning stuff at you know after an eight hour day of work at three, if this is your job and you love it and you can say, Hey, I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's a a different element today. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to spend time on the high. Right. I think that that, if, if you're not bogged down by having to be an active participant in whatever the hell you need to make a living, I think it's a different story about that process. It's very cool to be like, I need to fly to LA to work on the drums for a few weeks. Or Hey, I can, I can call in and you know, I can call in my friend from whatever I can call in fucking Gaspard or whatever the fuck to come listen to hi hats with me today. That would be a blast. And we know they like to sit around listening to music. So like I, what is working on the hi hats look like? Does it look like I'm fine tuning the hi hats or does it look like let's listen to a bunch of records Find some hi hats we like and try to 
replicate that with right. these recordings from orchestra. You know, that sounds like a fucking blast. Well, completely unsurprisingly, Tomas and Guimán are extremely particular about every single sound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, said Franco, we really took the time to make the drum kit sound the way we wanted, and the snare was very, very important because the snare of many of those late 70s disco albums was soft yet present, and we wanted it to get that right from the beginning. There's a famous random access memory story uh, often retold by Giorgio Moroder about the mics used for that auditory biography of his career, Giorgio by Moroder. Uh, when Moroder walked into the studio for the first time, he saw a series of microphones laid out. The engineer explained to him that each mic was from a different decade and he was to switch from mic to mic as he progressed through this, through his life story. Who's going to know the difference? Moroder asked. They will, said the sound engineer pointing at Tomas and Guimán. Guess what other details Tomas and Guimán obsessed over? Let's hear it. All of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Guzowski told Sound on Sound magazine that they wanted to use as little EQ as possible. Instead, they wanted to futz over mic placement levels pre... They, they wanted to futz over like just every single infinitesimal detail to get everything exactly right. So ultimately... Like, uh, the EQ on this is is almost minimal. They wanted to just use it to touch up and to highlight because they wanted to get it right in the studio. Uh, they were obsessed with details. That's like, a we'll fix it in pre. In pre, <laughs> yeah, yeah right? exactly. That's wild. Yeah, they were obsessed with uh, the details, like the fact that recording studios in the 70s were draped with thick carpeting deadening all top end sound and eliminating room tone instead of eqing the drums in the mix guzowski would switch out microphones in the room to capture the exact sound they were looking for for example he used a sony c500 a microphone from a microphone from the 1970s that goes for about two thousand dollars now specifically for the kick he explained the C500 has very defined top and fairly tight low end and picks up more of of the beater. So I wanted more attack if I wanted more attack on the kick, I'd add more of the C500 rather than use EQ. <laughs> it's like that like it's just like every everything is That's thought over. That's what recording engineers for live stuff are like. Yeah. They all talk like that. Like I I you know before I got really into dance music, I recorded in bands i was always in bands and stuff and that was always fascinating to me when i was like 16 and going to like some 34 year old's house to go record demos or whatever like the recording engineers yeah love i can't even, spending like, time with mic placement and i would be like yeah just make it loud yeah that's like guzowski and and uh franco like they spent their careers trying to like cut the corners the these artists wanted to right like try to just make it and then these two guys these like music and sound nerds come in and they're like they're on the same level as them and you can just hear the four of these guys specifically Tomas Giman, Guziak or Guzowski and Franco just like nerd out about this stuff when you when you go to like um uh, record direct in guitar now to you know, your interface into logic or Ableton or whatever you're recording in the, the, the plugins for your amp simulation will have pictures of amplifiers and you drag around a picture of a microphone wow. to where you would want to point it. And wow. it's weird to be like, how far removed am I? Cause I, you know, like I know what it's, uh, you know, I know what it's yeah. like to put two SM 57s in front of like yeah. my jazz chorus 
and try and figure out how to get it right. And it feels very surreal to yeah. be in software and be like, all right, now I yeah. have to drag these pictures of digital mics that someone invented all, just for yeah. me to do this. And all these yeah. guys have been around forever. And yeah. these, these two guys were like, no, we want to do it exactly the same as back. Let's then. talk about like the, 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 the thing that there's a slight disconnect in, right? There's a difference. You know, I talked earlier about like, you know, Ableton's cool because you have an infinite endless world, right? But you can go, like you said, and you can line up two different mics at your your twin 10 amp or whatever the hell. But the difference here is I don't have the luxury to choose a $2,000 mic and right. uh, from 1970. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. what yeah. that's what Daft Punk has. Absolutely. And that's what this record really accomplishes yeah. is they can. Uh, I don't have an infinite budget. I can't choose a, a, a you know, a retro mic. I can't choose a $5,000, whatever yeah. the hell, you know, like I it's, think it's, about it's wild to be able to do that, to the, have the resources. The Alesis 3630 compressor, yeah. the rat compressor that Daft Punk uses on homework was then and is still like a $60 piece of equipment. And the sidechain compression they get for homework on that is incredible. And it sounds like French touch. It is French touch to me, but no one would use it now. Yeah. And I see people using like that. I, I see people using expensive rat compressors in a way that you can't really simulate digitally. That makes things sound expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think about like, Sometimes I oscillate between like I should save up and buy an expensive compressor, and then sometimes I'm like I should spend sixty bucks and get an Alesis thirty six thirty, and just like I want to do both. Yeah. Like there's room for both, and Daft Punk does both of these yeah. things in their career very well. The the stripped down stuff and this expensive sounding stuff. Absolutely. I wish more. I wish I could hear more artists do their stripped down bedroom stuff and, and their expensive stuff because for sure, like some artists are very good at both and should do both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the kick drum is one example. Uh, everything on this record was recorded with completely different mics uh, than any other thing. Like they put that kind of microscopic yeah. detail into it. Uh, it I, I would highly recommend looking up this uh, sound on sound interview um, with Franco and uh, Guzowski because it, if you're a music nerd and an, an auditory nerd, they really go into every specific aspect. Uh, even even each section of the orchestra was recorded with specific equipment. Each piece, every sound on the record was carefully mold over and picked apart to find exactly the perfect way to capture the energy and essence Toman or Tomas and Giman were looking for. Toman. Toman. There you now, go. there's an idea. <laughs> uh, they had. Uh, they even had to get a little creative for some of the elements they wanted on the record. For example, they talked to a sound engineer from Warner Brothers Studios about the best way to record the sounds of a dinner party, eventually getting about 20 people together for a small shindig and placing a mic by each fork on the tables. I thought you were going to say they had to talk to someone from Warner Brothers about how to get a rabbit eating a carrot to sound right. <laughs> about how to get a frog to sing. <laughs> no, uh, that is level, it? That's, yeah. that's wild to me. I, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's you, very that, cool. You know that that bit with like yeah. that like room tone mm -hmm. party. Mm -hmm. They were like they just had a dinner party and they got a mic by each by each fork. And that's I mean, where again, that came I, from. I I get it. Like we just talked. Like again, 
this weekend we talked we need to bring the zoom recorder out to the forest with us next yeah. time so we can get a good recording of the yeah. water yeah. at the at the creek that we go sit and listen speaking to of water yeah. even the water droplets on motherboard were yes. recorded on a sound stage yeah I every mean, single thing on here was was meticulously captured there's in a, the way they wanted. There's an interview with Jazz Shaw from Simeon Mobile Disco, who we talk about a lot on the show. And if you if you like dance music, you should spend time with his work and their work as a band. And he, I, I don't remember the context of it exactly, but they were talking about like what level of removed and what level of pretentious you can get with some things in techno. And the interview was like, yeah, you know, like if you know, recorded like a, a dance album with like a 40 piece choir and Chas was like, yeah, I hear you. It. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's like, to some extent, it's like, it is annoying to be like, let's work. Let's simulate a dinner party to record it, to have control over it. Like to some end, I find that like kind of grating and like, but, come on. but on the other end, it's like, it's very cool to be like, let's really do something. And yeah. to pull back to, to yeah, what they, I, what's the that thing, right? Every single time they have an idea, it starts little and it gets out of control. But pulling, Every yeah. single time. Pulling back to and something getting we said something earlier, like right? this out of control is let's get 20 of our friends together for a dinner party so that we could put a mic by yeah. every single person's fork like that. Like they could have just recorded the background of Omar's well, interview. Yeah. that Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or, or like um, there's the there's um, Revolution 909. They just sample an old Hollywood sound effects record yeah. for the crowd. That's like that works really well there, but here they're like we, no, we want need it to, to be, do yeah. something, right. and and they did something here, and it's really special. And I think what it is is it's it's the element that I brought up earlier, which is there's an artistry to recording on an analog twenty four track thing, yeah. you know, and they're taking that mentality of artistry to every piece of this, not because they can. Not because and because they can and because they want to, not because they have to or 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 because it's I mean, they've said it. The only expectations they care about are their own for this album. Yeah. You know, like and what they appreciate and what they you know, there's a reason there's a 200, you know, that he, that, he, that Tomas read 200 yeah. cinematography books for for uh, Electrum. Yeah. There's a reason that uh, that that. That comes with the whatever that two hundred picture album or whatever the hell. All of this stuff is about you know this album is about I I you know we Daft Punk understand our artistry the artistry we're interested in and now we have the resources to do that and we're going to they have, so they have they have always been students of yeah. this stuff right yeah random access memories is them saying we're we've now mastered. <laughs> Yeah. What I've a lesson I've learned a lot of lessons about music during the course of this podcast and one that I've learned through some of the Ram stuff is like sometimes they do things that are very annoying and like <laughs> roll your eyes at it like what are you talking about and sometimes to make great stuff you do have to do yeah. those annoying things and yeah. the more I spend time with music the more I'm like oh it's crazy to spend this much energy on such a small thing for so long but and even if even if no one else can hear the difference, it matters. I mean, it matters like, to you, this, this, right? To, to, and it matters to you might not you might listen to a song and just go, I don't like that. And the difference is like 
they didn't spend enough time on this yeah. one element that you would never hear. Well, yeah. the, the other, I mean, like the mentality that like is completely in a different world, right? Is the practice like you play mentality in sports. Like, why do we have to do all this dumb, tedious stuff? We know right. we can do it, right? And that's like infamous, like football programs will be like that. You oh, yeah. do this thing every time. You do this every time. Every ball, you know, and all of that stuff is, is once you, once you cut the corners on, anything it opens up this little part of your yeah. brain that would allow you to cut the corners yeah. on another thing because it would be easier to eq out something you know yeah but you know what do you actually lose maybe a tiny little bit you know you lose a, a microscopic little, piece of, little yeah. piece of soul in every little sound then all of a sudden you've lost a chunk of the soul yeah. on the album death and then, by a thousand eqs that's why a death thousand by eqs, a thousand Amen. EQs. Uh, this process went on for more than a year and a half. Daft Punk recording session musicians with Franco and Guzowski in uh, L.A., coming back to the studio with new exciting material from sessions in New York and Paris that featured incredible artists like Nile Rodgers, Pharrell, Chili Gonzalez, and more. They also made the conscious decision to record themselves in Paris, where it all started, on the vocorder and find space on the album for their trademark robotic vocals. Said Tomas, it felt important to keep the vocorder as this conceptual bridge. The vocorder is our voice. It's our voice conceptually. It's our voice musically. And it's our voice as robots. We felt that it defined us. The The voice of the artist, and I'm using the word voice in the philo philosophical sense as much as the musical one, is what really defines it. Like our, our approach was to work with really vintage, very heavy, great sounding vocorder system and uh, systems and talk boxes and to make them sound as human as possible that's that's very interesting to me that yeah, they were yeah. like the that at each one of these albums sounds so wildly different and has such a different approach in a in a thesis the one thing that ties them all together is is the robot voice and you know that'll carry not to get too far in the head that'll carry into the weekend stuff that that'll carry yeah, on absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's persistent like you'd think that it, singing and playing with a synthesizer would be easy getting a vocoder to sound clear enough yeah. that you even understand the words is a feat yeah there is there is a there's Same a the version, talk box for that matter there's a version of this with with the instrumentation and the attention to detail and how rich this sounds there's a version version of ram where they add vocorder and it sounds ridiculous right yeah. right like it, it it is a it's a lofty thing to record an album like this and then be like we're gonna do our robot but, voice thing on here but they it is it's a different level when you when you well i don't want to talk like track by track but like but let's go back a week right yeah and one of the quotes we had last week was was i forget who it was from but they said you know we tried removing right. the electronic and oh yeah it, and, and it didn't sound good we tried removing the orchestra, the orchestra and it didn't sound good it only works together because that's what they perfected yeah. in this and i think again we can look at the, we can see this is the student mentality. They yeah. learned how to do this on Disney's they, dime. They got such an incredible yeah. touch. Uh, yeah. like, and what does it mean to take some of these very modern elements and record them to tape, right? Yeah. I, we're going to use modern synthesizers and record them to, you know, ADAT or Ampex tape or whatever, and then process that. It's like they become integrated because you, you, you integrate the recording techniques of, of all of it, yeah. you know? Uh, and then, of course, 
we've got the collaborators. Uh, yep. We've touched briefly on the presence of Paul Williams, Nile Rodgers, and Giorgio Moroder on the record. There were also big-name current artists like Pharrell, Julian Casablancas of the Strokes, Panda Bear of Animal Collective, and, of course, uh, a return of a few longtime friends and collaborators like Todd, Willing- or Todd Edwards and DJ Falcon. Uh, we're going to get into more detail about their specific contributions in uh, uh, in parts two and three of our random access memories coverage. This yep. is the random part. This is the random. Next week, next is week's the access. access, and then and the third week is the memories. The memories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And don't yeah. think too hard about it because it doesn't really work. No, it, I think, you should think it's more. It's actually about really, it. really out of order. You should think more about it. You, you should, should think, think about more. this as much as us. Yeah, this episode is so random. <laughs> random. <laughs> this, this is the access episode. The coolest thing you could be in seventh grade is random. random. Absolutely. Uh, but um, so we're going to get way more into the collaborators and their contributions in a couple weeks but uh, there's some interesting talking points that we can bring up now Uh, this is Niall Daft Punk is such a perfect example my guitar is clean and straight no fancy effects there's no nothing it's just me playing guitar um on give life uh back to music and lose yourself i mean lose yourself to dance is a great example it's just guitar bass and drums um and they were able to capture the perfect sound of my Stratocaster. It was just, when I finally heard the record, it was just so beautiful to me. It was such a tribute to this guitar that I only paid, uh, actually, I didn't even pay anything for it. I traded another guitar, and they gave me back $300 because this guitar was so cheap. They were happy to get rid of it. And just think what my life would have been like if I didn't get this guitar. Everything would be different. I love that. Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. Niall Rogers is an incredible guitar player and he he he's he should be a legendary talent because of his guitar playing yeah and in addition to that he is an incredible songsmith and producer mm-hmm. and those are two incredibly distinct skills yeah it's like a lot of the chic stuff rips because of his his proficiency as a player and a lot of the stuff he does as a producer in the eighties with Madonna, and the B 52s is incredible because of his ability to be a songsmith. And it's like, I'm so in awe and envious of people who can have both of those things. Cause some people are really good at one or the other. And he's such a talent as a performer and such a talent behind the board. He, um, he invented a thing called like the casserole style of playing guitar which is now like a like it's kind of like plucky. He he figured out um he figured out a way to to play both lead and rhythm guitar at the same time. And they call I don't know why they call it the casserole style, but that's what they call it. And it, that's an incredible thing to to be known for. I just love like yeah, I invented the casserole style, which means I can play both guitar parts at the same time. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, there are a lot of riffs he plays where you. If you want to play, even on the even on the the Daft Punk record on on Ram, if you want to play the chord, you're holding the the low E with your thumb, mm-hmm. and you're playing the rest of it with your fingers. If you don't have big enough hands, that is very hard to do. Yeah. I think that that must be. I don't know what 
specifically as the casserole style, but that must be part of it. Uh, I just like the, listening to him talk about this old guitar that he's had forever. Yeah. It's just that's 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 music, baby. Yep. Uh, uh, here's Pharrell. They've never made any concessions. Just think that they're these two super special entities that were meant to bring music to this planet and remind people that feeling good is not so hard to do when things sound good. I just want to remind people that Pharrell is one is like our generation's hit maker, yeah. right? He's the tastemaker. Mm-hmm. He's he he might not be the biggest star in music, but he's ever present, right? Ever present, yeah. Uh, and and just that that effusiveness from someone like Pharrell is yeah. really great. Yeah, it is. Uh, and then here's Tomas talking uh, about Pharrell effusively. Is elegant, uh, is handsome, um, is super talented, and um, and he has, you know, somehow it's just an instinctive idea that we thought that he had that unexploited potential, you know, somehow a feeling, wow, you know, he's he's capable of so much, mm. and and not only is shown is shown it and in, in a multitude of ways uh, from as a producer and as a rapper and never as a singer, like this, never but, like but, this, but at the same time never like this, and it. Tomas has a crush on Pharrell. Yeah. I think he does. He absolutely He's does. elegant. He's I'm very fridge. I love it. Yeah. I get it. I have a crush on Pharrell. We all should have a crush on Pharrell. Pharrell's absolutely. awesome. Again, I, I, seeing uh, seeing Pharrell perform, I mentioned it on the show, seeing Pharrell perform uh, on, on when I was at Wayne State, uh, I didn't expect it. It was, there's just a, NERD is doing a show on the Wayne State campus and it's just this day it was like a wednesday mm-hmm. evening or something that show blew my mind because i did not understand what level of it, it's it's like you know there are those people you see and it's just that larger than life quality just comes out on stage <clears throat> there's a handful of performers that that i love that you know I've always been John, John. You know, I've talked about. I love the White Stripes. We know this, right? Yep. Jack White's one of those performers. Paul that Kogan. is just Paul Kogan's one of those. Like, really, actually, though, like I know it's a bit, but like, yeah, truly, truly it's just somebody who gets up and and there. It's just there's something different. There's something original but familiar, inaccessible and accessible. It's just like a contradiction on stage somehow. Uh, For all is definitely one of those people who's just an, an insane performer. Um, so with this much raw material, especially considering they had each piece double recorded uh, so they could blind test whether crisper digital tracks or warmer analog sound uh, mix better with any within any specific spot, it's no wonder that editing and mixing was an incredibly long, laborious process. And here is a little one from our friend Guiman, who is uh, so much more soft-spoken than our friend Tomas worked so much on it even the mastering uh, phase took so long uh, every i think we we were not sad uh, uh, in, at the end of the the making i mean for for years the the whole album we didn't have any perspective on it and we thought it, it might finish as only one track there was so many one song or one you know pink floyd kind of concept so it was not like a big cut where you have to leave something that is I think the the whole making from the start to the end was something like a, a flow that at the end we knew it was finished. 
and and uh, and and we were sure maybe even i mean maybe more than human after all because human after all was done really quickly mm. random access memories was uh, w- when it was done we knew it was done let's keep on that's the most we've heard him talk i'm glad, well, I'm glad he mentioned pink floyd because i have yeah. things to say about that in the track by track and i just bought the pink floyd yeah. dark side of the moon making of documentary yeah um absolutely and i have a lot i'm gonna watch that a couple times and think about it so those yeah. those huge 70s recordings like pink floyd were specifically something that they were locking into around here yeah. I, I they a couple times mentioned the idea that this was going to be a one track odyssey uh, uh at a certain point they also at one point mentioned that um the concept was a four four disc vinyl like deluxe edition so like the whole thing clocks in at 76 minutes but there was a version of this that was four vinyl records big yeah um i i, I don't know i, I love I, I do like that idea i i am somebody who loves the i love the concept album i i i some of my favorite albums I, I love, you know, that's the reason I love a lot of the music I love is that gapless through line yeah. of, of a journey. Uh, all of my favorite albums are a journey in one way or another. And and it's, again, that uh, this is the pinnacle I, uh, for me of, of a concept album. Oh, yeah. Um, which is one of the main reasons I love it. This album is interested in 70s songwriting to some extent. There is some, some very 70s elements to the composition of the tunes. Yeah. But the seventies influence of the record is predominantly in its production. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. even though there are some sounds that feel very Pink Floydy on the record, I think some very direct, you know, calling cards saying this is us doing Pink Floyd. I think the influence of it is way more in the production of it. And yeah, that absolutely. Is fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the summer of 2012, the robots told Guzowski that record, the recording was finished and that they were ready to mix. So they used three Ampex 102 recorders for the job, running each at slightly different rates of inches per second, known as IPS. So again, Guzowski points out here that like nobody but the nerdiest and most particular of audiophiles would hear any discernible difference between 15 IPS or 20 IPS or 30 IPS or whatever it was. But these guys know right so like yeah uh big um, summer for them it was a big summer for me i was working at the ramshorn and fraser on midnight that summer there you go uh and again that sound this sound on sound interview with the engineers um goes into way more dense detail stuff that flew incredibly far over my head uh again if you're a nerd for that stuff go look that article up uh, but through it all, Daft Punk had an exacting idea for what they wanted. Said uh, Guzowski, it, if it started to sound too loud, they'd want me to pull things back. They wanted a specific sound, and in some cases, I might have gone for a snare drum that was a little bit too processed or punchy, and they would rein me in again. They had an unfaltering vision for how they wanted this record to sound, and we experimented a lot to achieve that. The last steps was to get the final master tapes to acclaimed master engineer Bob Ludwig, who has worked on, uh, with more than 1,300 artists and mastered more than 3,000 records That's in his insane. career. Uh, uh, but his studio is in Portland, Maine. Yeah. In the documentary, 
Daft Punk Unchained, Franco said, We had been recording for four years. No way we were going to let the master tapes out of our sight. Uh, they were also weary uh, of any effect that like radar or metal detectors would have on tape. So Franco and Sam Cooper, who was an employee of Daft Arts, drove the master tapes from Los Angeles to Maine to ensure they nothing sound happened. Like the, lone, the three lone gunmen from X Files, the one who came <laughs> yeah. to go and did that show. Yeah, like those like sci-fi guys who yeah. like live in a van or whatever. Yeah. that's that energy. That's, yeah, uh, we got to protect our master. We got to put tinfoil hats on a, our music. That's a road film I'd watch. I would watch two guys two driving, guys driving Daft yeah. Punk's that's masters across the country. That's what I don't like. Trump was about. Yeah, that's right. what, yeah, yeah, yeah. I already watched you guys drive around. <laughs> Said Franco, we had put so much energy into the project that we uh, didn't want to hand it over to a courier company. It would have been like handing over your own child. (laughs) We were just really happy to have come this far through a process that had been great fun. There There was no point at which we felt lost or scared. Everything we were doing felt really right, and everybody was on the same page. We were all... uh, in the studio with great people and great musicians. And it was really like a family, uh, like going to a summer camp with a lot of really fun and interesting people. It was a magical experiment. And I think that filtered through that final product. And again, like a guy like Pete Franco has worked with thousands of artists. That's my favorite quote we've had so far. Cause so often when you're making art, it feels like you're doing it in the dark and you're like, yeah, is this good? Are we doing this? And once in a while you work on a project where you're, it's just fun. If it's comedy, you're laughing from the yeah. time you sit down to talk about it until it goes up. You Absolutely. Never, like the idea of being like, it was, it was good the whole time. Yeah. And we knew it was good. It's very cool. Cause it's, it's rare. So often it's you hard. Hear people like we had a hit album, but when we were it recording torture. it, we had no idea and it was scary and we thought it sucked yeah. and we hated it. And until it came out, we didn't know. This is like, we made good stuff and the whole time we had fun and then we drove it to Portland and it was still good yeah. and it was all good. I mean, so let's let, you know, to, to look back a little bit, like on that quote, the only time we hear of them kind of outwardly talking a little bit about a negative time they're human having is human after all, right? Yeah. And again, it, it reads, it comes through in, in the product, yeah. right? Um, so I think that's important to point out. Said Tomas... These were happy moments where everyone was very enthusiastic. Without really having thought about it, we gave birth to an optimistic, generous album. Yeah. That's great. Hell that yeah. is great. That's that. Yeah, and again, you know, Tomas more more than Giman around human after all was working through something yeah. and was very clearly in the few interviews he gave and in the music he was producing was not happy. So I, it's very nice and. I, I, I just feel warm inside to yeah. hear him say, like, we were all having fun and we didn't even think about it, but we made a generous, optimistic album. That's great. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so the album was done around the fall of 2012, uh, but there was still a lot to figure out. Without a record label, Tomasa Gimon had decided uh, had to decide how exactly it would be released. Uh, Just like their inspiration for music and their attention to the recording techniques, Daft Punk decided to look toward the heyday of disco and funk for the answer, Columbia Records, a stalwart label that was hugely influential in the 70s and 80s. Rob Stringer, uh, uh, Columbia's CEO and chairman, 
heard the record in August before the final mixdown and remembers thinking, oh my God, if we don't get that, I will be depressed for life. <laughs> uh, uh, Daft Punk's manager, Paul Hahn, said they chose Columbia for the culture of the company and the talent of the people they had put together. Tomas added, it felt interesting conceptually to write uh, this story for a record company like Columbia with a 125-year legacy. So Daft Punk signed a one-off deal with the company wanting to retain the ability to find the right partners for any endeavor in the future, according to Han. So again, they like that. that's interesting. Like They say we do a one-off record with the idea that we want to take every project to who it would be most appropriate for, but also we're they possibly thinking that it's a one-off thing they because the last one. I, I, I'm they getting, I'm getting more and more towards the idea that that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it feels like, it feels like a complete idea. And more, in my, and in more, my mind, yeah. I think that they don't have a plan beyond this and they are making sure they have contingencies that if there is something beyond it, it's its own thing. You yeah. know, like that's what that is. Some people might say a one-off thing is, you know, I guess I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me like that probably they are, they have a feeling there is, could be it. it but again, hindsight's a lot easier if they don't if this doesn't turn out the way they want if they don't win five grammys with this album if this album isn't isn't treated the way that it's treated you know as far as its reception in the world you know maybe this is that if 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 this album is good but not great maybe there's another one if this album is great and and and, and, and legendary maybe they do know that's the time to hang it up or whatever yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it just more and more it feels like there there's these little sun, subtle hints that they're like, we we have grown, we've learned. Our whole thing is about learning to tap in to the nostalgia of our uh, of our childhoods, and this is our chance to use our wild expertise born out of twenty five years together as musicians to just blow it out. And celebrate everything we've meant to celebrate in the how, appropriate how way. How old are their kids around um, this time? Like, how, I, do we, I, know? On a, we don't really know. Wait, I don't know. They I both have two. They both have two kids. I don't know. I wonder if at a certain point it's like you know what? Yeah, this is the record. But maybe, maybe I don't want to keep flying yeah. from Paris to LA all the time. Maybe yeah. my kids should just go to school. You know? Yeah. And maybe the other thing is is you know the other direction. Maybe the. The world has changed a lot since 2013, right? And maybe if the world changes in a little bit of a more optimistic way or something like that, maybe there's a different attitude. I mean, so much of it we look at is from like Daft Punk outward, but they're human beings, right? And there's a world that has no, an they're effect. robots. <laughs> but I mean, there's a world that has an, <laughs> an effect on them as yeah. well. You know, so I guess maybe we'll never know. No, we never will know. Right? Uh, you know, that's that's part of the fun of speculating. We'll ne- right. we never will know. They don't want us to know. You know, and if they it, yeah. they do want us to know one day, we'll know. You know, yeah. and that's the the magic of it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, before we uh, continue the script, I <laughs> this is a uh, an excerpt from the GQ article that I didn't find any place for, but we should talk about this for a sec. Dahomum Christo barely talks at all, which is discon- disconcerting at first, and then sort of fascinating. 
Later, I'll give the two of them a ride in my car, and from the back seat, Tahomum Cristo will break character to beatbox the hard-hitting percussion break in Montel's Jordan. This is how we do it when it comes on the radio. It's a good song. A sublime and unexpected moment, like watching a goat yell like a man. <laughs> watching a goat yell like a man. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you're Gimon and you read the GQ profile? They're like, yeah, him singing Montel Jordan is like a goat singing, screaming like a man. Good. If you if you had a three hour lunch conversation with two French music geniuses and one said six words to you the whole time, and then out of nowhere he started beatboxing to "This is how we do it" in your back seat. All the all That's the Daft like, Punk articles and interviews and and all this stuff in the English language Daft Punk Facebook groups love Tomas and spend all this time with Tomas is yeah. the genius in the Spanish language Daft Punk group. There are so many bits about really? Tomas, and they're all just like. They're all about Gima. Yeah. They're like, he's, they love him. I, it's, I, it's very funny how the energy is very different. It's like a more comedy energy yeah. towards him. As, as a Daft Punk fan, I've always like gravitated towards Tomas, but he's like, he's the vocal center of the group, right? He's the one that he's the, he's the, he presents them to the world. The more I've gotten into this project, you the more I'm like, Gimon fucking gets it, man. I, think, I spent a lot of time. <laughs> I think we would have more is, fun hanging out with Gimon. Who Gimon's. is Brett and who's Jermaine? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, right. yeah. That's a tough one. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think, I think, I think Tomas is. We the all know Brett. Pedro Winter is Murray. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Pedro Winter is Murray. <laughs> well, Gimon, it's like it's like stuff like that, right? Stuff like the the beatboxing in the back. Chemical of the car. Brothers are Todd Berry's band that plays the absolutely, the dog song. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's true. But like, sorry, Chemical Brothers, I really love you. That's not. I, a we thing. do love. We do love you, your newest Brothers. album is my favorite thing you've ever done. And we will probably talk about you a bunch in the future. We will <laughs> make uh, to amen. this extent, maybe. <laughs> uh, but but. Gimon, like the more we get into him, it's just the more I feel like his brain operates more comfortably, like musically, right? Like, I, like it goes back all the way to the LED masks of like Tomas's this the silver well, mask so, has words right, and the other so ones animated. Tomas is the Tomas is the tactician, yes, and he's the one. He's the he's the one with in uh, like too many ideas to enumerate, and the one that throws everything down. And Gimon's the one that comes in and says like. This is how you make this a melody. Right. And this is how you make this. But it also, I mean, but it seems like, you know, there's a level of mechanical understanding to Tomas. Like, yes. You know, he's an yeah. instructions oh, yeah. book guy. And again, like, it just seems like, like we've heard, like, Iman can find the right note. He can yeah. say this note should be this note. And, no, you know, like his brain seems more mechanical yeah. where Tomas's brain seems, I mean, a musical where Tomas's brain seems more mechanical as the, you know, the, right. the, the structure of the duo uh, from, from you know what i have seen so absolutely far, or which from is cool. what they have said yeah you know because yeah. again this is all of like all of the stuff we ingest is filtered through their their public relations masters i also found an interesting quote uh they were looking back at tron and they said Gimon wrote all of the bad guy scores and tomas wrote all of the hero scores <laughs> Wow, which I th- I feel like is cool. is very that that is very on brand. I yeah. think <laughs> like Tomas looks at himself like the hero of his own story. You know, Gimon. Gimon, he funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the group confirmed their partnership with Columbia in early 2013, and alongside with some 
a really effusive Twitter post by Nile Rodgers hyping up the band's studio work. Speculation began to explode across the internet about what the robots may have in store. At some point during the making of the album, Gimon stumbled across a book called Rock and Roll Billboards on the Sunset Strip, a coffee table book filled with glossy photos of the glitzy billboard ads albums uh, featured during the 70s and 80s. That's my favorite Aaron Sorkin TV show. Yeah. <laughs> Rock and Rock Roll, and roll 60 on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> uh, I looked this up. Uh, a paperback version of this is like $65 on, on the internet now. To so be it's fair, like, all, all art books. Yeah. Like anytime it's like a book true. of photos of some shit, it's like every coffee table book's $100 for some uh, reason. The robots who had been steeped in nostalgia of this era for years while obsessing over random access memories had another spark of inspiration. If everything else about the album celebrated the 70s, why not the rollout too? Uh, Stringer from Columbia loved the idea. He said, we wanted uh, it to be a campaign of weight, like when record companies had the confidence that they had a big, big record. So Columbia envisioned, uh, envisioned an analog to digital marketing campaign where old school marketing techniques led to an enormous digital footprint as fans and music lovers posted their encounters with Daft Punk material in the real world. And that's actually exactly how it played out. The first billboards popped up in early 2013 around South by Southwest and the Ultra Music Festival, leading to a flurry of social media posts showing cell phone camera images of uh, a stark billboard, uh, the now famous split helmet image atop a black background. More billboards and posters, uh, posters started to emerge around Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, more cities. And then on March 3rd, well, yeah. They, uh, they, they like weird, bad movies. Yeah. And they do the, the analog and digital to tape at once thing. Mm-hmm. And they do this billboard in L.A. rollout of their thing. The room became famous <laughs> yeah, because a LA single billboard. billboard stayed up for years and years and years. And it spread enough word of mouth yeah. and people taking pictures. I bet they like the room. I bet they I'm They sure would they not do. do a billboard campaign like this in L.A. Yeah. I bet they like the room. That's true. Their favorite I, yeah. movie's Phantom of the Paradise. And, and I uh, bet they like ultimately, the room. Ultimately, that... Um, that billboard shares a lot of similarities because it's just like a black yeah. billboard with with yeah. Tommy Wiseau's I face. I bet they like the. I'm room. sure they do. They love garbage. Yeah, they like, love garbage. They love garbage. <laughs> we love garbage. We we're, love garbage. We all live in the garbage. We all live in the garbage. Life's a garbage man. Dig yeah. it. If uh, <laughs> as soon as you life's a garbage. Dig it. It's very funny. <laughs> that should be a shirt we make. It's yeah. Like, Ooh, let us know. If let you us know if you would buy that. If you would buy that shirt, we'll make it. Just if, if life's, it's a gar- like, life's a garbage. If we, if, like yeah. if the image is like a big dumpster <laughs> with just the two robots digging in it, uh, or just a big person with a spoon, yeah. like life's a garbage. Dig it. Um, on March third, the robots set the internet ablaze again, debuting a fifteen-second clip of "Get Lucky." played over the sparkling uh, Daft Punk logo as an ad during Saturday Night Live. Tomas was like specifically, SNL is a, a, an American cultural institution. We're tapping into something from the 70s. This thing needs to be on SNL. And he was fucking right. Could be, people went shithouse for this thing. They ripped the ad and looped the music. Uh, uh, they took this 15 seconds and they, ad, they made like 10-hour versions of it on 
on YouTube. And it's, a, it's a 70s cultural institution. Yes, exactly. It's 1975. The yeah. Muppets were on the first yeah. handful of episodes. It is the SNL is 50 years old now or whatever. And spans a lot of generations, Absolutely. but it is a '70s cultural institution. Absolutely, and and like, it hit exactly as as like they wanted it. Like people uh, took like took that 15 second clips and just like obsessed over that guitar lick from Nile. And then they just speculated wildly about what the album was going to sound. like. It, it was a huge hit. Um, about a month later, <clears throat> uh, they returned to Coachella. Uh, this is uh, I'm, I, uh, this is a f- an excerpt from the Rolling Stones article, All Hail Our Robot Overlords. It's one of my favorite pieces ever written by Daft Punk. Uh, is it this a is a Simpsons reference? Yeah. The, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the title is yeah. absolutely a Simpsons yeah. reference, uh, uh, which, yeah, why not? <laughs> Maybe that's... Together. Yeah. They're, like, slowly, at some point, everything that I love is just going to be one ball of, like, dumb shit. Yeah, where, this is, this is like... Just a big thing that we well, rolled into I'm, one big I'm, sticky I'm waiting pile of for, stuff. I'm waiting for the time that my everything that I love in life is like that uh, wet pile of newspaper in a bag <laughs> on the side of your garage oh, yeah. or whatever. You better believe it. Uh, so this is a, a little bit long, but uh, this is like just one of my favorite passages ever written about Daft Punk ever. So I'm going to read it. Who cares? We're already running long. On a sun-baked Friday in the Mojave Desert a month later, Tahoma Cristo is sipping yerba mate tea poolside at a gorgeous old Palm Springs ma- mansion, his ass crack sailing out of black Dior home swim shorts. <laughs> Bang Alter is a few feet away wearing tiny blue lacrosse trunks and fraying a uh, Borosalo straw hat, telling Pharrell he's totally got to see Oz the Great and Powerful. Really, man, Pharrell says, all right, I got to check that out. Oz the, the one starring James Franco. The one that Sam Raimi made in Detroit with yeah. our friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Dude, they like they all the same love, stuff that sucks lo- as me. Yeah, they love shitty you shit. You gotta see that. Oz you gotta the see great Oz the Great and Powerful. They like... <laughs> I, I would love to chat I, with them yeah, about Xanadu. I, like, yeah. I, I would love to chat with Tomas about Xanadu. We, we might not have the same brain for some stuff, but we like the same Absolutely. movies. Uh, back to the story. Disco blasts from wall-mounted speakers. Hired chefs work a barbecue grill. Empty bottles of uh, vu- some some liquor I can't even pronounce. It's too fancy. Uh, litter tables. Two dudes sit in the kitchen with large baggies of weed rolling joints. It's the first weekend of the Coachella, uh, Coachella Valley Music uh, Festival, and Daft Punk have rented the mansion, which used to belong to Biz, uh, Bing Crosby for a long weekend. Pharrell is just stopping by, but 10 or so of the duo's other friends are crashing here, sharing bedrooms, playing ping pong in the living room, fixing cocktails from the stocked bar, climbing up to the roof and cannonballing into the pool out the back. Uh, Daft Punk's family are elsewhere. <laughs> so the, the, their family away back. from the kids. Yeah, weekend away from the kids. They're going nuts. The duo are here to drop a surprise on the crowd tonight, but they're tight lipped as to what it might be. Are the robot helmets here? No, Bangalter says. We can't tell you where they are. Todd Edwards, the DJ, is in the living room drinking tequila. Even I don't know what they're doing, he says. If they uh, if they don't tell me, I don't pry. There's an air of a bygone music biz excess to the place that's fully in keeping with random access memories throwback ostentation. A Porsche Carrera is parked out front near a massive gong that visitors can bang to announce their arrival. 
Demon is staying in a bedroom where JFK is supposed to have had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, says Bengalter. Quips to Homum Christo, it puts a lot of pressure on me to do something interesting in there. <laughs> this is incredible how performative this is, right? They never let anyone in. Yeah. Right? And during all these years of them doing these other things, they have this tight control. But when it's time for them to do their 70s yeah. sleazy rock thing, they They're rent a it. 70s sleazy They're rock it, mansion baby. and drink tequila in front of reporters. This is a performance. And you it think rocks. so? Yeah, yeah. Like this. Yeah, they're doing it. They're having fun. Yeah. But this is they what are doing they, it. they yeah. never let a reporter come stay in their mansion and do anything. Yeah. Until it's this L.A. That's mansion true. party outside of Coachella JFK shit. Yeah. That is, that's, that is that's very it, controlled. Yeah. That's pr- yeah, absolutely. What they will not do tonight, Daft Punk insists, is perform. Bagalter says there aren't even plans in place uh, to tour the new album. We want to focus everything on the act and excitement of listening to the album. We don't see a, a tour as an accessory to this album. But when they do finally hit the road, he adds, it will be a career-encompassing set list, not one overly focused on the new material. So, I know. They were, in 2013, they, they had, they, they were thinking about it at least i mean but that that the words uh, career career folk i mean that that again is another tally mark towards the they know it's maybe this is the end or whatever or they're not going to tour until the end i don't know again speculation doesn't <laughs> i don't know uh around 7 30 p.m daft punk and their friends edwards dj falcon uh kitsone uh, gildas lowak and other handful a handful of others hustle into a van headed for the festival Pharrell and his crew follow in a black sprinter. Bangalter plugs in his phone into the stereo, starts blasting Quincy Jones and Led Zeppelin, then turns around and confers in hushed tones with Daft Punk's manager, Paul Hahn, about the imminent surprise. Turns out that an extended trailer for the new album featuring a video of Daft Punk performing Get Lucky and sequined tuxes alongside Pharrell and Nile Rodgers will play on the HG, uh, HD jumbotrons flanking each of the festival stages. Will the sun have set by then? Big Alter asks. Will people be able to see it? Han says it'll be fine. Security waves us through the edge of uh, the Coachella grounds where two idling golf carts haul us to the artist area. Tahomum Christo darts off to take a piss while Bang Alter sketches out a battle plan. The video will be staggered between various screens and he wants to catch as many airings as possible. With a dozen odd friends in tow, he and Dahomum Christo soon make their way to a railing at the edge of the VIP section with a view of the main stage. If any people recognize them, they don't make it known. At 8.35, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs are about to take the main stage. The sun is set and the Jumbotron suddenly bursts to life. The Daft Punk logo pops up and Get Lucky rings out on the speakers. People begin dancing instantly, lifting their camera phones, shrieking when the robots appear in the video. In less than two minutes, it's over and the screens go black. The collective mood is one of ecstatic confusion. What the hell was that? The Daft Punk crew exchange uh, congratulatory backslaps. Pharrell gives Bangalter a high five. In a few days, handheld footage of the trailer will have racked up more than a million views on YouTube, threatening to overshadow the rest of the festival. Right now, Bangalter throws his arm around Dehomum Christo and murmurs in his ear in French. They turn from the railing and walk off together. Just two more grinning faces in the crowd. I love it. Man. I love it. I love it. Uh, what a weird thing that you rent a mansion and throw a party to yeah. play a trailer for an album in a music festival. Yeah. What a bizarre thing. Yeah. And they what, fucking what did a it. weird like 
like the when you would plan something gigantic, it would be a show. It yeah. would be a release. They threw a party and had an article written about them. And they yeah. flew to a festival to show a two-minute two, YouTube clip, and, essentially. That's, and, but again, that's guess so what, guess modern. What, guess what nobody ever fucking talks about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 2013 Coachella performance. Yeah, that sucks for them. I know. Like this played before them, and and it, it, this is one of this is an iconic moment in Coachella history. Yeah, that's a bummer. It sucks. Also, but like I think that again, like this is for them. Like for them, is this is this the moment that that five years of work is over. You know, is that, Absolutely. Is, I mean, that's yeah. the celebration, yeah. right? That's the Absolutely. celebration they're throwing. They that's worked the demarcation. On this. They yeah. worked on so this for it's five like, years. I mean, it's it's a wild way to release, a, 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 you know, to, 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 to announce something further or to give more detail into this. But again, it is You like, recognize the longer you work on stuff that if you're working on something special and you show people all the intermediary steps along the way, it's not interesting. If you spend a bunch of time and you keep it tight-lipped and then build it up and unleash it. Gimon, so here, again, here's another, so Gimon, Gimon has said a couple times that the biggest mistake in their career was staying silent during the Human After All rollout, right? Yep. That that they are such control freaks. And then they said this album speaks for itself. And then they were like sideswiped by the fact that people didn't like it. I, I know we so that this is all. Yeah, I think you might be right. This is all very carefully planned and think yeah. about this though also like this I, j- I just had this thought there is so i know we just heard them say when they do perform it'll be a huge hey, thing here, focus. Can here, I, let me wh- get this one thing out this what like there is what what if what if they know they're not going to perform what if they do know this is the end sure. what if this is them seeing people react because they're not going to perform in front of a crowd again Maybe. I mean, there's a reality that so, that yeah. could be something, I took, too. I took this clip out of the script, but this is Tomas talking about touring. Yeah. Let's just let's just see what, what he says and see if there's anything we can speculate on it. We haven't really given it a thought because... Liar! Uh, I lied! Actually, yeah, no, okay, 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 okay. So we've given a thought, and the idea is that we're not interested <laughs> in touring right now for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. I think, um, first, you know, uh, we like the idea of obviously being where uh, nobody is, you know, in a certain zone or trying to bring something that people are not bringing, mm. you know. So in a certain way, if you look at touring, uh, we, the show, we we, we, we presented and we put out uh, a six and, and actually seven years ago, we felt it was a, 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 a something special, yeah. something new that was, that, that, that could um, uh, shape uh, a new kind of electronic music performance. And we're very happy to be the somehow um, the first one and do it, you mm. know? So mm. it, it seems now that the, the, you know, we knew that this show was ahead of its time. It's probably time validated it. And it seems that now it, it's, uh, you know, many other artists have, have kind of, of caught up and, and are presenting Most a, definitely. A, a, a very uh, um, um, ambitious show that are immersive and that are uh, definitely creating uh, one of kind of experiences for the audience. So I don't, I don't know it's that... It's the Tron legacy thing. Yeah. You innovate the... Te- you Like Tron was so innovative technologically that the movie Tron legacy felt like it had an obligation to also break technological ground. They were so innovative in the technological presentation yeah. of their thing that all of a sudden any follow-up 
it like the follow up should yeah. be about the music. It shouldn't be about the experience. But they're like, fuck. How do we? Yeah. Do, how do we so reinvent a concert in in the GQ uh, profile? He asks him specifically about the pyramid. So like that was a huge thing. You like think about like how many millions of dollars could you guys do if you just did another pyramid tour again? And Tomas is they're talking to him and he's like. Yeah, I mean, our entire career is about never doing the same thing twice, but the thing we've never done twice is do the same thing twice. And and then the the author goes, and you can hear Dehomo Cristo auditorily groan as like, as yeah, Tomas goes that. down the rabbit hole. So Tomas was like actively thinking, like the thing we've never what done twice did, is do the we, same what thing if we twice did it again. And then, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and then Kimon's like, oh, uh, that sucks." Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't, I think that they were actively having that as something that like they uh, do, tour at 2013. They they couldn't they, figure out how to do it. Yeah, they couldn't figure out how to do it. Yeah. If they had figured out how to do it, they would have done it. I think that how how to do it is a lot like well, we're going to talk about the Grammy performance, but yeah. I think that the Grammy performance looks like a lot how what it what a Daft Punk live show after Ram should have looked like. Yeah, and that and we'll talk about it, and that would have been cool. That is not um, that is not a, a takeout. Your that's not a spectacle. Man, I I think uh, I think I I think what the Grammys is is incredible, and that's what yeah. I like. Yeah, I do not I think know that that's to, what they would have. I think there's a way to make that a spectacle. I, if you I mean, add a bunch of lights and visuals to that, I mean, I, I will tell you guys right now, seeing Stevie Wonder live was one of the best things I've ever seen in yeah. my life. And and you know, like yeah. if you have that with a Daft Punk, and you know what I mean, I get it. Like having the session musicians, having that, and then having a Daft Punk spectacle alongside it with them in the again thinking of it as a musical in the production role in the role of 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 you if know, they had if they had figured it out they would have done it I, yeah. I or or the other the other side of it is did they lose interest in doing it? you know because that's the other thing we know they're not I gonna doubt do it. that's just yeah. i bet they didn't figure it out yeah yeah i don't know there were other promotions planned uh they had at one point agreed to appear on the colbert show and do their first ever non Grammy. I remember yes. this night. I, I was, was watching it. Furious. I was watching it not because of Daft Punk. I, I was, was just it because of Daft. Punk. I would just watched Colbert every night at this time. What happened? So they uh, they were going to do their first ever TV performance that was not the Grammys. Like it was a thing. the The Colbert Report talked it up for like a weeks. Month. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was confirmed. Whatever. At the last second, they backed out to instead appear at the MTV Music Awards. No. Yes. They, yes. I thought they backed no. out because contractually they had a, a like, if you're going to do something, you can't do both. You can't do both. Yes. Because, like, they couldn't do they one couldn't, or the other for Viacom. They, yes. Because of Viacom, they could not contractually. Yeah. So they chose to go to the MTV Music Awards instead of perform on Colbert Report because of some Viacom shit so like okay sorry colbert we're gonna do the mtv music awards instead at the mtv music awards they stood wordlessly behind taylor swift as she presented an award and that was it. i think it's radius it's like radius clause right if yes. you if you're gonna go do 
if you're going to go do Bonnaroo, yeah. you sign a radius clause saying, I'm not going to do another show right. within 300 miles of this for three months. Right. I think it's something like they committed to the MTV Music Awards and then. But you know, at the at the Music Awards, they stood wordlessly behind Taylor Swift as she presented an award instead of performing live. Right. On TV. I don't. Th- but I don't I don't think it's yeah. that they picked one over they, the other. Yeah. I think it's that they were going to the MTV Music Awards. And I then am, could not. I, as uh, somebody who uh, is specifically in 2013, didn't have a whole lot else going on besides loving Daft Punk, uh, uh, was incredibly disappointed, (laughs) incredibly disappointed at how that played out because instead of watching them perform on national TV, I got to watch them stand wordlessly behind Taylor Swift. So, so instead of, so instead of, uh, sh- having Daft Punk perform, uh, Colbert and a slew of celebrities danced to uh, "Get Lucky." Yeah, he got a bunch of he got yeah. a bunch of funny people like weird it, people. Yeah, on there. it was the da- it was the Daft Punk version of that Gal Gadot yeah video yeah. from the pandemic where they just like showed a bunch of people in their homes dancing yeah the yeah uh, uh that was that Colbert was used to rock Colbert used to rock I used to love that show um they also hosted an itunes listening party on may 13th uh, it was just a streaming thing. You locked in and you you couldn't download it. You just got to listen to it. That's when I heard it for the first time. Yeah, we got your eight-year memory. Yeah. You, you eight, re-shared on, I, on I Facebook. I shared it on Facebook. Um, uh, I, I was just as uh, achingly nerdy about this stuff eight years ago. I've been a loser Max. forever. Uh, it was very funny to be in the midst of doing this show and have that pop up on my timeline and be like, Oh yeah, uh, I wrote 400 words about the, the listening party Daft Punk shit that I did by myself in my apartment for two likes on Facebook. I've been, I've always been this way. Hell yeah! <laughs> when you said they hosted, I just had the idea of how funny it would be if Daft Punk hosted SNL. Oh my god! Can you imagine if they Silently. wrote a bunch of sketches around <laughs> SNL and they didn't like they, they were just around like, them? They didn't speak that, the whole show. Oh man, That'd be very funny. The official album release party was for some still unexplained reason uh at the annual summer fair in the tiny australian town of weewa wow. yeah um so they they um the itunes re- release thing happened um a couple days before weewa specifically because they were trying uh it got it got leaked somehow yeah. like it got leaked like a week beforehand so they were like let's just go let's do the itunes thing Boom, boom, boom. So um, uh, the initial plan was to have the first time anybody publicly heard the record to be in Weewa. That just uh, they had to pull the trigger a little bit soon. Uh, Daft Arts employees constructed Australia's first ever outdoor dance floor for the event. It was an LED surrounded space that was described as Saturday Night Fever meets Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, although it was made clear oh that Tomas God. and Guimon would not be there, tickets sold out in under 13 minutes and thousands of Daft Punk fans from the round, around the world descended on a tiny town population 2,000 in Northeast Australia. That's their electric forest. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just like, it's like it's like a town fair. It's like, like the kind of thing where it's like, you know, that's Who's got burden. the biggest they burdened watermelon? They that town with that. Yeah. So they, they, they still love, they 
they talk about it very fondly. They they think it's very fun. They they all had a great time. But yeah, it's it's a very weird thing. It's to like have we've happened. assigned this chaos yeah. to your town. <laughs> uh, the uh, album was officially released May seventeenth, two thousand thirteen. Uh, and the boys were at peace with the finished product, no matter the reception. Tomas said. In Scream 2, they have this discussion about how sequels always suck. <laughs> the thing we can ask ourselves at some point is, we're make, we've been making music for 20 years. How many bands and acts do you have that are still making good music after 20 years? It always sucks, and you know, almost it's almost always sucks. Gimon then piped up, so our new album is supposed to really suck. <laughs> I like, they're so patrician in their... Uh, music taste and in the fidelity of what they're interested yeah. in and sounds and they're so pedestrian in their film taste they're like again yeah, i also great and powerful rocks and in scream 2 they're talking about this <laughs> but then when they're talking about music they're like we had to use sixty thousand dollar microphones to capture yeah. like gimon taking a shit or whatever and then they're like and like oz is so fucking great it's cool oz, the great like, they're powerful. they're so that rather hated movie <laughs> they're like so they're so yeah. And that's so. That's such a funny disconnect. Absolutely, and we get it. I get we, it. We, we, we get feel it. the same way because we've been talking about this album, <laughs> not even auditorily. We're we're going to do have another two hour episode where we talk about the uh, actual music. Like, if you like think we're thing. at two hours, you're confused. <laughs> Andy, and I, Andy and I are in a group text with someone who has been who was texting us about hi hat. Like he's like, I yeah. found a song and it's very good. The hi hats are very good. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. Like we think about these things in that way, and then also like I, Hulk Hogan's yeah. movie career is my favorite movie I, career. So of I all don't, time. yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever told this on this podcast, but um, I remember saying as like um, as like a twelve year old, telling my parents my favorite sound is the may is is the way that somebody's car keys make on TV, <laughs> and my mom was like, "What are you talking about?" And, she, and I was like, "If you." If you listen to when somebody on TV grabs their car keys, that's my favorite sound. <laughs> and my mom was like, Andy, really? What the hell are you talking yeah, about? They should have put you down. <laughs> they should have put you down. But it's, they if you made you a robot. They if, you ever, <laughs> if you ever get a chance. If you ever get a really, chance, watch TV. And really, listen, that's Foley, really right? That's yeah. not, they don't yeah, no, that's that. Foley that's for sure. Foley. That's Foley. There's, the, uh, there's like a very satisfying, like, just click noise yeah. when somebody grabs car keys on TV. And that's, that's your favorite music now. Yeah, All yeah, of it is absolutely. just weird I was, I was hardwired to like this shit because, yeah. Uh, Random Access Memories has the highest Metacritic rating of any Daft Punk album. Q Magazine said it is by some margin Daft Punk's best album in a career that's already redefined dance music at least twice. It is, in short, a mind blower. Enemy listed as one of the 500 greatest albums of all time. There's too many good reviews to like quote here. Just you can you can look them up. Just know it is it's roundly celebrated. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Shout out friend of the show Nick Stevenson who got to hear this. Uh, yeah, whose review is quoted. Yeah, who on the Wikipedia yeah. page. Uh, I I that was one of my favorite things about our uh, extended conversation with him. If you haven't listened to our episode with Nick Stevenson, uh, just him sitting in a room with Columbia reps listening to the album and then demanding to hear it again. I don't yeah. review anything I didn't listen to more than once and he he got to say and listen to it again. That rocks. Here's Pete Tong again. I know for a fact that you know everybody else in the business, you know, spends a lot of time or has spent 
hours and hours and hours listening to Daft Punk records in the studio going, how did they do that? You know, we, we, we want to sound like Daft Punk, we want to kick drum like Daft Punk, we want to do this like Daft Punk. And they know that, you know, they, they're, they're kind of proud of that. You know, it's so easy to make music now and it's so easy to access all these, you know, on your laptop and all this software and everything like that. And I think they thought, you know, what could we do that's really difficult to do? What can we do that nobody else can do all the time? It debuted at number one in France, the UK, and the United States. No other Daft Punk album had ever reached number one in any of these countries, which is wild. Mm -hmm. it didn't, it, they never had a number one album in France. Uh, it held the top spot in all three of these countries for at least two weeks. In the United States, Random Access Memories was the most purchased vinyl record in all of 2013. All told, the record reached number one in at least 18 countries worldwide. In an age of declining album sales, Daft Punk sold more than 3.2 million copies in the first year of its release. For reference, Discovery sold 2.6 million copies between 2001 and 2005. Wow. So That's they wild. their their most renowned album in the height of of album sales sold 2.6 million copies in 4 years. Random Access Memories sold 3.2 in their first I year. I wonder if that includes digital album yes. equivalents. I think it's I I'm pretty sure that 3.2 gotcha. includes digital sales. Gotcha. Yes. Um, but unqualified success. Yeah. Uh, the record was nominated for a slew of awards, including five Grammys, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Best Pop Duo Group Performance, Best Dance Electronica Album, and Best Enge Engineered Album Non-Classical. They showed up to the Grammys in their robot helmets, obviously. Uh, uh, and uh, at the beginning, there were in sleek black suits at a certain point during the ceremony uh, Cedric Hervey and Paul Hahn were shown on air during the show with a Chiron that said that this is Daft Punk <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very funny because like at Point several the camera at anybody and say it's Daft Punk who cares <laughs> who gives a shit at several points Cedric Hervey specifically has been said like that's one of them and it's, it's it's very funny that it just keeps he's just all around them um uh, after their first win, uh, with the robots awkwardly and silently accepting the award, it became clear that Daft Punk might be in for a really big night. So at that point, they changed their strategy. The part I have of that Grammy evening is after the first award was won and Pharrell and the guys came back and Tama, you know, took his helmet off and you could totally tell that one moment of, we didn't say anything and Pharrell, you need to express more. Dude. Um on the behalf of uh, on the behalf of the robots. Yeah. But you can totally tell the love and the passion in Toma that he just like we're not saying anything. We're robots. You need to tell them about the magic. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's very funny. I found I I I never seen this before. I found a photo. I'll post it on our Instagram and Facebook page of Pharrell and Tomas uh, hugging backstage after that first win. And it's just, oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, they put so much work into this, and um, th this this was a really special night for them. And um, yeah, at a certain point, the robot slipped away from the ceremony to get ready for their performance. The week leading up to the show, Daft Punk had been rehearsing with Nile Rodgers, Pharrell, Omar Hakim, and other and um, some session musicians and another one of their heroes, 
Stevie Wonder. Yep. They had tried to connect with Stevie for a, uh, a few times over the last four years in, a, in, in an attempt to guest, uh, to get him to guest on the record, which I, I learned just now wow. uh, researching this. I did not know that, but the timing just never worked out. That would have been incredible if Stevie yeah. Wonder was on Random Access yeah. Memories. What was Stevie uh, Wonder doing during these years? I don't know. You know? I don't know, but it just never. I mean, I saw. He's kind I, of had big moments. I saw him. Decade. I saw him. Primetime headlining at Bonnaroo in 2010. So like he's 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 touring and he is he is playing to you know yeah. in the summer he's playing to because he's I don't like he's a marquee almost, performance before these decades he's had big collaborations in almost every decade yeah but yeah that's interesting that would have been really cool um the week leading up to the show their big plan was a little bit in jeopardy Stevie came down with some sort of illness that threatened his participation in the performance. Which led hangover. to a hangover. He was hungover for a week. No, he was in like a hospital. They never All said right. what happened, but it, and they were like, it wasn't life threatening, but he was like in like he was, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it led to a logistic nightmare for the group. As Daft Punk and the collaborators were rehearsing, they got several conflicting messages uh, from Stevie Wonder's people about whether he would be able to make it. Tomas and Guimond worked out a modular melody that could work with or without Stevie, which is crazy. Uh, uh, so they had like two versions of their Grammy yeah. performance yep. going at the same time. Uh, and, uh, but he rolled in Friday night. So he did one rehearsal with the group and then final dress, uh, and was ready to go for the Sunday performance. When Neil Patrick Harris excitedly announced the Daft Punk show lights came up on a beautiful soundstage with Pharrell crooning and Niall noodling around on the guitar. When a screen dropped to reveal the robots now in sleek, all-white versions of their iconic uniforms, the crowd exploded. Here's Pharrell again. I will never, ever, 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 ever forget that night. I was surrounded by legends. Surrounded by legends. So, I never watched my performances, by the way. But I'm told that you could see it in my face that I was <laughs> surrounded by the legends and that, I, you know, there were moments where I was just kind of like, <laughs> you know, but that's what happens to you, man. It's come on. After going four for four on awards for the night, Daft Punk seated with friends, family, collaborators and heroes wearing immaculate white versions of their famous headgear silently looked on uh, as the nominations for the illustrious album of the year award were read off. After Alicia Keys yelled the first syllable of the album title, Taylor Swift, nominated for her album Red, leapt in excitement, but it was random access memories that took the night. Tomas and Guimond stood and hugged, and I honestly got teary-eyed every I I I fucking cry every time I watch this clip. It was a surreal experience. Watching my favorite band, two soft-spoken Frenchmen who cover their faces with ridiculous robot masks, celebrate a lifetime's worth of friendship and teamwork with a joyous backslapping hug. It said more than either of them ever could, even if they wanted to. 20 years before, Tomas and Guimond were entranced by the magic uh, of the Parisian rave scene. And they ditched their guitars for drum machines to enter the underground, misunderstood world of pulsing dance music. Their ambitions were clear from the start. They wanted to be huge. They wanted to change the world. They wanted to bring dance music to a global audience. That hug, that award cemented their legacy. The ambassadors of the groove had vaulted their art form to dazzling new heights. And that moment, 
they had done everything they had ever set out to do. Wow. Wow, what a summer. Wow, what a summer. <laughs> what a summer. Wow, Donna Summer. Wow, Donna Summer. <laughs> Uh, that's yeah, that's a that's a that's a um, great outro. It's tough to even say words. I after uh, that. I, uh, I um watch their hug. Watch go, it, yeah. Watch for real. go just ru- like when when we watch wrap the here. Acceptance speech. Watch the acceptance speech uh, with Paul Williams. Watch watch them hug. Watch the way they embrace each other for too too long. Um, they're you can't see their head. You can't see their faces. You can't see a single piece of. Their flesh, they're covered head to toe in all white, but you can just, you can feel the love they have for each other in that moment. Yeah. Um, it's really powerful. Um, and I, uh, I, I could, I could not believe it when I, I was watching at home. I never watched the Grammys. I don't care, but it, it but they were nominated for five and they were going to play. So I, I watched the whole thing and that moment was just like completely surreal because I had. I'd like gone down this rabbit hole of, of dance music because of these guys. And then I watched them accept music's biggest award in a, in a like that Daft Punk dance music does not win album of the year right. at the Grammys. That's that insane. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's, they had only invented the, um, the, the best electronic album. Yeah, category a handful of years earlier, right? right? Like two thousand five. So for yeah. for for electronic music to be so new that the category was invented during their career and then they won album, album of, of the, the year. year, yeah, is a huge crowning achievement. Absolutely, it's really special. Uh, they're the yeah they're the first dance act to win that. Um, they're still uh, some know. of the first robots to ever win. They're the, yeah, they're the first non-humans to win. For sure. Uh, yeah, it, it was an incredibly touching moment. And for them to sit there still in character to win. So they, they have they have a unique relationship with the Grammys where, like, they, they constantly talk about, like, you know, wanting to do their own thing and not caring about money or accolades or whatever. They they care about the Grammys. They'd won Grammys before. They've won Grammys before. They care before. about the Grammys. They've only ever performed three times on TV, all oh, three the of Grammys. them Grammy performances. It is fitting that the year they do this this gigantic 70s like it feels like them performing what they think the music industry is like you know the parties the energy the billboards that they do this like absolutely big performance these you know like costume changes it's it's very cool it's very of the album yeah and and the album looking at what random access memories is and looking at who votes on the Grammys, divorce divorce the idea that Daft Punk is a dance act, and divorce the idea that it is some like new, um, uh, you know, genre that's tough to crack into. And look at the way that they recorded it. Look at the attention to detail and the mic placement and all that stuff we nerded out over in this episode. That's what Grammy voters nerd out about. Yeah, of course, the Grammy voters love the record with not with Sheik and yeah. Paul Williams. And yeah, stuff. like Grammy, like these old guys, like everybody from the, the votes on the Grammys is from the 70s, 60s and yeah. 70s. And the recording techniques, they're of course they celebrate that stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, um, I uh, 
uh, I love this record, and uh, it's really important to me. I'm glad to go through the history of it, and we've got two more we've random got two more weeks to yeah. talk about. So it. next week, <laughs> next week we're gonna um, go more into the the big collaborators that you all, all know. So we did this the session the, musicians. So, so next week's the the first time that we all are taking a little chunk of the the oh yeah the prep of it too. So that's very cool. We split up the um, the different uh, collaborator series, and uh, each of us has a little bit of homework. So that'll be a unique episode for us, and I'm pretty excited about that one. Collaborator. Yeah. I barely know her. <laughs> and then after that is the everybody's favorite. Everyone's uh, favorite. It's, it's a live 2021 after dark. It's the track by track. It's the analysis. track by track episode. Uh, that's where we cut loose. Live 2021 we have AD. fun. We vibe out and we go track by track. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, as much as you can nerd out about the stuff and they nerd out about it too, it's about the music. It is. I love I love the track by track episodes because we just get to like vibe out and yeah, and talk about really the into sounds. Our favorite. I sounds. like when we finally get an opportunity to vibe out because we <laughs> don't do that enough. Ah, My name is Andy. You can find me on Instagram at Andy Reed. Andy Reed. Reed is spelled R E I D. Or on Twitter uh, at Dr Good Tweets. Uh, my name's Darren. You can find me on all the social medias at The Most Darren. You can find me on Spotify as A Plum Bomb. Uh, I also stream some video game content over on Facebook Gaming. Check me out at DSG Gaming. Uh, my name is uh, Devin, and you can find me on Spotify uh, as Devin Jetski, uh, like the Watercraft. And I got music on there. And if you could follow me, that'd be great. And also, I got more music coming. So yeah. play it and put it on a bunch of your playlists and let and the DJ algorithm it. and DJ it and buy it on Beatport. <laughs> Uh, you can contact the show at info at alive2021.com via email. You can like us on Facebook and Instagram. You can buy a shirt at um, alive2021.com. Yeah. That's it. We got songs. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I forgot about that part. No, uh, we have it. Oh, my goodness. So uh, every week. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it. Every week we talk about uh, some something in dance music that we're really digging right now. Um, something uh, new, something old, something borrowed, something, something blue, <laughs> borrowed something blue. Uh, yeah, just a song that we're really connecting with, so that you might connect with something in dance music. Uh, who wants to go first? I can go first. Uh, so this is uh, a song that I, I stumbled on, uh, and, and I really like it. It's it's a little less dancey, definitely less disco than than most of the stuff that I suggest. But there's a driving kick. It's a dance song. You'll love it. Uh, this is called Fade Out Lines. It's a, a rework of a, a Phoebe uh, Kildare song by The Avener. It's everywhere I look, from Las Vegas to right here, under your dresser, bye-bye. It's creeping in sweetly, it's definitely here There's nothing more deadly than a slow-going fear Life was full and fruitful and you could take a real bite The juice pour- Woo! Yeah! That snare sounds incredible. I love it. I love how it sounds. It's fitting for this album, too, because there's a lot of more live-sounding stuff going on here. It was a little more warm and, and an organic feeling, a lot of space in it. Uh, so I thought it was fitting for the uh, Ram app. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, mine is a, uh, Anne on Based. Uh, her real name is Anna Suda. She's a Polish producer. Uh, this is a song she put out last year called Back to the Garden that I can't get out of my head.
that's music to forget. You've been listening to a lot of techno. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Deep. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is, that's warehouse music. That's techno. She's awesome. Just like weird, like dark ambient sounds. That is music to make you forget who you are. The like, best kinds of techno is like when it's got like it all sounds like bubbles popping. Absolutely, like it's dark kick drums and then it's just like yeah, I love that. Uh, what you got? Uh, I got tune uh, an old old house house classic uh, by MK Burning from the early nineties. It's a good reminder that to make uh, dance music, you do not have to have gigantic, hyper-produced, layered things. That that track has like like five things going on. It's yeah. like that like detuned organ chord thing, that weird chord progression. It's like if you have a compelling enough little chord line and and fun enough little drums, it's gonna groove. It doesn't have to be. Are you saying that not all tracks have to have 250 separate identifiable yeah. tracks like well, touch what, I, what by I've been working on I've been working on music where it's like I've, I feel like I've yeah. just been engineering every single moment of yeah. it it's like every sound has to have a build and a drop from it and to it and it's like hearing that I was like oh yeah that's that's a very, very simple it's very simple and it does not have gigantic swells it doesn't yeah. have huge it's just like a compelling little melody that just yeah. thumps and, yeah and like I saw a video that's that defected one. posted of MK spinning that at a, a, a rave a couple of years ago. And the crowd was like losing their minds waiting for just the vocal to come. And it's not an explosion. Right. It's just like, it just like slides in there. It's very That's, good. That Like that is one thing about the production of this music that um, we could potentially move away from right now is like this increasingly, this increasing pressure for the build and drop of things. Like not every song needs that built in. Not every song needs to be like a destroying fucking drop thing. You can build little swells and drops. You can telegraph these elements without it being, you know, it it should be subtle enough that you don't always notice it. You just feel it. As soon as like you telegraph it with these gigantic, like, let's ramp it up for a long time it can be satisfying but oh yeah i I like this where it's just like it doesn't need extra elements to show you where the groove is going it just does it with the melody yeah the groove is is in in the heart heart. Groove's in the heart and delight said that (laughs) yeah they meant it all right so we'll be back uh next two weeks with two more rams right yeah That's, that's we're we're quickly approaching the end of this project or yeah. are we or are we bum 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 hey everybody stay tuned uh we'll see you next week hello everyone alive 2021 is a member of the planet ant podcast network and was created by andy reed developed by andy reed devin rosenai and darren shelton with technical production by darren shelton for more information please visit alive2021.com